0: Which is more real, Tyler Glasnow's fast start or Nick Pivetta's slow start? I'll ask Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And
2: here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 12th. It's show number 17 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host. We do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with guest expert Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, discussing Tyler Glasnow versus Nick Pavetta, about replacing Miguel Andujar, the new panda. He'll have his boons and banes and a whole lot more. We'll have our Market Watch News reports, Harold Nichols will have player news from the National League, including the Dodgers' rotation, the Mets' infield, and the Rockies' outfield. And Jock Thompson will be covering news from the American League, including rotations in Cleveland and New York, and the Texas infield. And I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about pitchers who are moving the needles early on their rest-of-season projections. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cleveland outfielder Oscar Mercado. And in our first weekend pitcher matchups report of the 2019 season, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Blake Snell visiting Clay Buchholz and other weekend tilts. Finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about managing with all those injuries. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Maybe this Pete Alonzo guy is for real. we got to talk some baseball. Well, after hitting his first big league homer 444 feet last week, Alonzo outdid himself this Thursday in Atlanta. Alonso lined a shot over the fence in dead center field, and according to StatCast, the ball was hit 454 feet, and that's quite a distance, especially for a batted ball with a line drive launch angle of just 17 degrees. But the reason it splashed down in the fountain behind the fence was an exit velocity of 118.3 miles an hour. According to Major League Baseball, Alonso's frozen rope was the ninth hardest homer hit since tracking began in 2015. And the only ones hit harder have all been by either Giancarlo Stanton or Aaron Judge. You might have heard of them. Now Stanton's record of 121.7 miles an hour still stands, but he'll be looking over his shoulder at this fellow New Yorker. Alonso now has six homers and 17 RBIs in the young season. He's a $30 player by Baseball HQ calculations. And you can bet our analysts are going to soon bump his 24 homer, 89 RBI full season projection. Now it's true, he still strikes out a lot, 64% contact rate, but he also walks a lot with a 12% walk rate. It's impossible to say if this is a thing or a mirage of a thing, but for now, I'll bet a lot of us are going to be tuning into Mets games on MLB TV and extra innings. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. How many leagues are you going to be playing in this year in fantasy baseball?
2: Ah, uh, standard, I'm around 10. Um, I'm also playing in a few DFS contests, um, private things with uh, one with the Yahoo group. I'm playing in the uh, Tout Wars DFS, which is always a lot of fun. And uh, another one with a private group of mine. So um, I guess if you count those two, I have a best ball team that requires no maintenance. So I guess it gets up to about 14, all told. But as far as just the regular maintenance leagues, it's around 10, which is good. That, that's about my saturation point. I've been in more leagues before and uh, just find it you know, taxing. I can't really put my best effort into all of them. And um, I know I've talked several times on this program about how important I think it is to partner up in some leagues. If you have the right partner, which I'm lucky to have in a keeper league of mine, I have a great partner where our skill sets kind of match up well, where he's good at some things, I'm good at some things. But Um, It's a little lighter this year, and uh, I think it was important for me to, to go down that path because I think I might have been spreading myself a little bit too thin.
0: I'm playing multiple leagues for the first time in many years this year, and one of the things I've already had trouble, and I'm only playing in three, and one's an American League only, I've got a mixed draft and a mixed auction, and one of the things that I'm finding really difficult is keeping track of which players I have on which teams, and so I made a spreadsheet to keep track of them, and then uh, so many times this year already, I seem to have had one of those situations where it's my my starting pitchers going against the, the offensive lineup that I have the most guys in, I don't know what to... I, I just end up miserable about the whole thing. I guess I'm a glass-half-empty kind of guy, but every time I see one of those situations, I think, oh, no, this is not going to work out well because for one side or the other, I'm going to end up losing. How do you cope with that with 10 teams?
2: It's difficult. And the other thing is what's going to conflict a lot is what you have written and what you have promoted and what you have told other people to do and how that matches up to what you actually need. Um, you know, I, I find that happening every week where you know, it happens a lot in football. I'll say, okay, this, this quarterback's going to do great, or this running back's going to do great, and then I'm smack dab against those guys in a bunch of games, and I don't want them to do great because it's going to be to my detriment. But I at the end of the day, what I try to do, it's, it's not always the easiest thing to do, but I just try to sit back and appreciate the play, try to learn from what I'm watching, try to, at least in, in baseball, you can take stock in, You have a bad day. You have a bad week. It's a tiny grain of sand on this huge beach of a season. So I try not to get too bent out of shape, out of things and know that there's going to be conflicts. That there's going to be, you know, I'm not really sure. And and again, you talked about how hard it was with three teams. It's certainly a lot harder with 10 teams. I'm still figuring out who do I have, where, which teams in which teams that seem like things fell together. You know, I man, it's two weeks into the season and I'm already thinking this team looks pretty good. This team I'm not sure about. And I know that, that sounds kind of cockamamie because, I mean, we, we just haven't seen enough results yet to have strong, definitive opinions on things. But it's going to take me a while to settle in to know where is, um, you know, where are my players? What are my rooting interests? And the other thing, another just huge, gigantic thing, which you have to you have to settle in with multiple teams. You have to get into a routine with the the cadence of the lineups, you know, which which are weekly, which are daily. When am I going to set all those things um, I'm really lucky that I have four very central fab periods on Sunday that are important to me. And for whatever reason, they happen to be at 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 12 o'clock Eastern time. They're all spaced out by two hours. So it's easy for me to remember. I, I have reminders set up in my phone anyway. But it's a, there's a, at least there's a consistency and a cadence to that day. And I can structure it a little bit. And once I see results from some leagues, I can maybe apply them to other leagues if I've missed out on a player somehow he fell through the cracks or get a better sense of what the market may bear. Every league's different, of course, but you can learn a little bit by applying what's going on in one league to a league that may be similar. So I'm getting into my routine. I'm a big believer in if you're going to be successful at something that has this many prongs to it, you better have some sort of routine and some just sort of pattern to how you do things. And you, Again, I think it's central to have a, a calendar where you're reminding yourself of stuff and just get used to doing things as much as you can in the same framework.
0: Well Scott you mentioned that you're looking at your teams and some of them are doing better than others and it is a bit silly to look at a team you know 10 games into the season and say this team's going to be great but at the same time don't you after having played the, the game as for as long as you have uh don't you get the sense that you have teams that look pretty good even this early in the season
2: Yeah the the one team I'm really really excited about is in the um Justin Mason, uh, the great fantasy baseball invitational. I'm, I'm actually fourth overall in that league, and you know, whatever standings mean. But I, I look at some of the players on the, on the, and I know we're going to talk about some of these guys. Um, I, I have Matthew Boyd in that league. I think he may end up going down as one of the key players of the year. Um, Kirby Yates is, is a closer I thought was a second tier closer. I thought, look, nobody has to be this year's Blake Trinan, but I thought if anybody could be. This year's Trinan, it could have been Yates, where he really emerged last year. He was on a team that I thought would be competitive, win a lot of close games, and I was looking for maybe a first-tier closer at second-tier prices. And you know, who's to say this? What he's done through two weeks will continue. But I, I just really like the setup of that San Diego team. The fact they pushed in their chips on Machado, they've uh, accelerated the progress of their prospects. Tatis made the team, Paddock made the team, so they want to be good right now. I think that might be a plus setup. I took Kike Hernandez late in that draft, not really even sure that he'd be worth anything, and then he's ended up being a starter on what could be the best offense in baseball. So he's just the kind of guy. Look at this offense, uh, this lineup, this uh, this roster. And I see a bunch of guys that I feel like if we've redrafted, a lot of the players I have in later rounds would probably go three to five rounds higher because they found themselves in better situations. I, I can't say any of this is necessarily by design in the sense that I was hoping Boyd would just be playable every week. Now I'm thinking maybe he'll be a top 30, top 35 starter. So he um, certainly needs some luck with this. And then you look at the people who win leagues like this, they hit a lot of green lights. They don't have a lot of injuries. I've been pretty relatively injury-free in that league. So um, I may regret saying all this. The next time we talk, you may say, oh, what happened to that team? I may say, oh, I'm in 147th. But uh, right now I'm just looking at some of these guys, and I can tell myself a pretty plausible story that some of these players may be the right answers in 2019.
0: And do you have any that you look at and say, this team's going nowhere fast and you, there's nothing I can do about it?
2: Well, my tout wars pitching staff, I, I really did want to buy an ace, and I ended up not for reasons I can't really finger point, but I thought Kyle Hendricks and Rick Porcello were going to be valuable pitchers because they are going to be on decent teams. They were going to be durable. And even though they're not strikeout pitchers, I thought they would get to reasonable strikeout numbers. Oh, Purcell is about a strikeout per inning guy now, but you know they're not—they're not 250 guys. You know they're not Max Scherzer. They're not—you um, know—they're not Jacob Degrom. So I thought, okay, if I can just get a lot of innings from these guys on good teams um, with reasonable ratios, and they'll get strikeouts just from the volume. But when I see the, the shape of baseball right now, obviously it's, it's been a three. Tr- true outcome game for a while and the the ball's been flying out of the park for several years now we saw extremely it was homer friendly in 2017 but this year is starting to look a lot like 2017 i'm wondering if having pitchers who dare to put the ball in play is just too dangerous and remember the one awful year that Porcello had was in 2017 and i'm starting to look at this team and think jesus i I, maybe i really needed nace on this team i could always trade for one i have you know, Chris Bryan on my offense. I have Bryce Harper on my offense. I have Joey Votto. It's an OBP league on my offense. I'm sure if I were to dangle one of those guys, Matt Carpenter, you know, they would get me a pretty good pitcher. I, I can't say they'd get me Scherzer uh, or DeGrom, but I could get somebody pretty good for those guys. But I think you need a front man. And not, not that you have to pay through the nose for it. I, I know Todd Zola's talked a lot about. You, know, you can't go into a draft and think, I have to have an ace, and then if the pricing is crazy, just get it anyway, I and mean, maybe that's a mistake and you should go the other way. But I look at this team and think, wow, this really a big glaring hole at the front of my staff, and that's the type of thing you can never expect to pick up. You can pick up valuable pitchers, useful pitchers, but you're not going to pick up a top five, top ten starter. Those guys are already owned.
0: Or hurt, uh, increasingly, as we've seen uh, this week. depending on how you felt about Mike Clevenger going into the season. Uh, Clayton Kershaw was hurt. He's back, but we don't know how he's going to be. There's still a lot of question marks amongst pitching, that's for sure. Uh, In your column at Yahoo Sports last week, you offered some suggestions about players who might be available to replace Miguel Andujar, the Yankee infielder, likely out for the rest of the season. He's got a torn labrum. And one of the names you mentioned for medium-depth leagues is the Mariners' Ryan Healy. Ryan Healy was really out of favor in, uh, in tout circles coming into this year's drafting. What do you like about Ryan Healy, and has it changed from before the draft till now?
2: Isn't it crazy, by the way, that everybody in the Yankees is hurt? Is today's news was um, Sanchez won on the IL. I mean, it just feels like everybody on that lineup other than Aaron Judge is hurt right now. and just uh, absolutely crazy. I guess Gleyber Torres is healthy too. But um, with Healy, my original play was just, okay, look, he's going to get playing time. He's going to hit 20, 25 home runs. Seattle's a little bit misunderstood as a park. It's not a great scoring park, but it's actually slightly favorable to power, at least it has been the last three years. Uh, so it's, it's not like it's killing you if you're a home run hitter. And the, the early signs with Healy are very positive. The walks are up, strikeouts are down, line drives are up, and he's cut down in his chase race significantly, which, of course, you have know, ties to the strikeouts. He's not swinging at bad pitches. And you know, Seattle's lineup has been so good through two I guess two and a half weeks now. I mean, they're first in homers, second in walks for first in strikeouts, which shows that they're a modern offense. they are even 17 for 19 in steals. I mean, you wonder if you should run it all in today's game, but if you're going to be that successful at it, I guess you can keep doing it. Maybe this is going to be one of those teams that we didn't think the offense would be that good, but maybe just having a piece of it will be worthwhile. My original stab at Healy was just a playing time guy a power source that we could believe in. But if he's going to be improving his his um, plate metrics, and he's at an age where improvement could happen, not that I want to price it in necessarily, but at least the early returns are good there. And we know walk and strikeout rate is one of the stats that stabilizes quickest. We're not at a point we can completely believe in it, but we're not far away from it either. So I, I thought he was going to be just more of a Band-Aid fix, and maybe you wouldn't even hold him so long. You know, if, if Andahar did come back or something like that, oh, it seems like he probably won't.
0: A guy you liked in your column, uh, Williams Astadio of Minnesota, and this guy's got some crazy walk versus strikeout numbers. Walk strikeout numbers are
2: incredible. He never walks, but he never strikes out. And what he did last year, I know he's obviously old for the level, but I mean what what he did last year at AAA means something to me. And just about any player can get hurt on this team, and it will free up a spot potentially for Astadio because there's so many Legos on this offense where Gonzalez can play all over the place and Astadio can cover a bunch of different positions. so I, To me, he's one of the most interesting players in fantasy. I'm really excited when he's in the lineup, and when he is in the lineup, they usually bat him in a good slot. He was batting third in the New York series. So I, I think you have to project him right now conservatively, maybe 275 or 300 at-bats, but, man, I would love to see what he might do with 450. It may take a slump from a couple of guys. It may take a major injury from somebody. But I do think the Twins like him, and I do think that he's the first man up if a major injury hits.
0: You mentioned earlier Matt Boyd of Detroit is a key element on your so far successful fantasy baseball invitational team. You also mentioned him in your Yahoo Sports column, and you said that his decent early start, he's a 260 ERA, 115 whip through 17 innings, uh, 29 strikeouts, I think was leading the American League at the time that I checked. Uh, Usually when we see this kind of thing, we write it off as a fluke with some kind of weird luck, strand rates, hit rates, sometimes both. What's going on here with Matt Boyd that makes you feel a little more confident?
2: I mean, he, first of all, you love the strikeouts, and I really love that he had 13 strikeouts in a day game at Yankee Stadium. To me, that's a signature, significance event. Bill James talked about that many, many years ago. About some events can have so much um, pull to them, can be can be so significant in the magnitude of them that you don't you can throw out the rules of oh, it's just one it's just one sample. It's you know there's not a lot of data here. Um, you know, somebody throws a no-hitter and strikes out 18 guys, it's almost unlikely to conclude that that pitcher isn't special in some way. It just wasn't okay. He got lucky one day, or the umpire was giving him all the borderline calls. Now, granted, Boyd went to New York and, and faced a Yankee lineup. is isn't anywhere near full strength, but we know what a dangerous park that can be, especially in the daytime, gets the 13 strikeout. and he's been good in his other two starts. Last year he started to introduce that slider as his wipeout put-away pitch, had really good numbers in the second half. And uh, I've been hammering this all all year, all spring, all April, and you know, I've already mentioned on this podcast the AL Central is where you want to be. There, aren't, the offenses in this division are not good, and um, so he, most of his most of his starts are going to be. You know, Grant, I can't guarantee the Tigers are going to be good. I know they're off to a good start. I don't think anybody really believes in that, but um, most of the time when he pitches, it's going to be against an offense that's at best average and probably below average. So. Uh, throwing the slider usage, throwing the ability to put people away and strike guys out, which has, I think, never been as important as it is today because anything in play can hurt you. Uh, I, I think Boyd is a breakout pitcher. I, I thought he was going to be a, a pitcher five, pitcher six, maybe for mixed leagues teams. I, I, I'm thinking now he might be like a starting pitcher three. I think he might be go down as one of the right answers this season.
0: Yeah, he was very popular, as I said earlier, with a lot of touts this year. And, uh, one of those situations where we've been waiting a long time and I wonder when you, when you were speaking of those kinds of things, these narrative ideas, the Bill James, a concept of the signature event, is there any concern with that, that it needs to be uh, leavened a little bit by the danger of a narrative bias that the, we allow the story to get in the way of the actual numbers and the facts that we know because the story is so appealing and compelling?
2: You know, there's a problem with attribution where it's so hard to know sometimes why, why was somebody successful or why was somebody not successful You know, with the pitcher? Is it the pitching coach? Is it the catcher? Is it the new spot on the rubber? Is it a pitch he's throwing? Did he just match up well against the team he was facing? Was the wind blowing in that day? Was he getting all the borderline calls? And, we we have all these different potential explanations, and sometimes you just don't know. I, you know, maybe the guy just woke up and got a good night's sleep that day, or you know, uh, something put him in a good mood. Uh, you know, or again, why why don't people perform well? You know, you find out at the end of the season sometimes, oh, yeah, my elbow's been barking for four months. Or maybe somebody's going through a divorce, or maybe they're just not happy in, in the city they live in. Maybe their kids are unhappy at school, you know, or they have um, you know a family issue, you know, a parent isn't, isn't well or something like that. Uh, there can be so many different things. Um, maybe they're pressing to justify a contract and to try to get a new contract, and the, the ability to the the process of trying to attribute why things happen and why things don't happen and where things are going, it's it's an inexact science and it's it's a I wish I had a great answer for this, I don't, but it's just it's just a very difficult thing to the attribution of why is somebody performing well or performing not as well or performing something that's out of the range of what we thought the the players' skills were. And of course, you know, they're always changing too. You know, players are always improving. You know, some guys are in better shape. Some guys muscle up too much and lose their flexibility. Uh, It can be so many different things, and trying to figure out why things are happening and how real things are—that's basically why we play. But it's incredibly inexact.
0: Well, I'll be talking with Todd Zola a little later, and one of the uh, things I'm going to ask him about is this idea that he floated in his uh, Rotowire column this week about allowing the uh, the the non factual the not the non purely factual information to be overridden by the things you 're observing from early early season uh, goings on and i don 't want to say that he 's that, uh, that he 's attributing it to a narrative that he can construct to justify doing one thing or doing it another, but I think it 's an interesting question how Willing, we have to be to be successful as fantasy players to look at least a little bit beyond just what those skills and and the uh, the various uh, projection systems and so forth tell us about the the levels that these players can be expected to perform at solely based on the numbers that they have previously uh, logged, because we have to be willing to accept the evidence of our own eyes. It's the whole scouting versus uh, stats kind of conundrum in in, uh, minor league scouting and prospect scouting. But I think at a certain point, if we want to be successful, we have to be willing to roll the dice at least a little bit on what our instincts, what our experiences are telling us.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always say that wait for proof is the dead fantasy strategy because by, by the time you have proof, somebody else has acted on a, a partial amount of proof or on intuition or on instinct or just on need. You know, they needed to do something at second base and they picked somebody up. So um, it's not a satisfying answer, especially for people who are data-driven. They They want to let the numbers collect and get to a point where they can make a sound decision. But the way fantasy is played we need to come to practical logical guesses before those that proof really comes in
0: you also discussed the relationship between Colton Wong of St. Louis and his now departed manager Mike Matheny there was something about those two guys they rubbed each other the wrong way and of course it cost Colton Wong a lot of playing time and a lot of opportunity and it seemed mostly because Matheny i'm not going to say didn't like him but didn't appreciate what he was bringing to the table as a ball player And since Matheny has departed, something seems to have really changed for Wong. It's working for him in the new regime. After years of single-digit homers and stolen bases for full seasons, OPS is in the 700s. He has three home runs and two stolen bases already this year, so he prorates to smash his His past record his OPS is over a thousand I'm not saying we expect any of that to continue at this pace but how much stock can we put in this new player paradigm a narrative if you will that a new manager means a new opportunity and possibly new success for a player like Colton Wong
2: yeah I think he actually stole his third base last night so he's up to three and three we love the category juice will draw a walk a little part of that is where he is in the St. Louis lineup and we'd like him higher in the lineup for fantasy value but you know, sometimes it's not necessarily that the new coaching is good for him, but maybe just the idea that under Matheny, he was jerked in out of the lineup a lot. Maybe you just get players fall into that trap of, okay, I better go three for four today or I'm not going to start tomorrow. Or maybe there's nothing I can do today. They already have decided I'm not playing tomorrow. And I think just going to the park and knowing you have a job basically to yourself. I, I don't know that he'll he'll play against all left-handers. And he had a two-homer game earlier in the season where he was pinch hit for later in that game because Josh Hader was on the mound, and I mean you can't blame the Cardinals for that. But um, Wong is a plus defender and does have power and speed. He's shown the ability to to give us a a power-speed season before. And I I think just knowing that you have ownership of a position and you can relax a little bit and settle into who you are, still in his 20s, I think we still may not have seen the the best of Wong seasons yet, but just knowing that he has a job and knowing that he doesn't have to deal with a relationship that obviously had soured in St. Louis, I, it just seems, it, to me, it just seems intuitive that would make somebody better at their job. I mean, if if you came to work every day and felt like you were being micromanaged, I don't know how anybody would, would do their best work under that situation.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and and I think that this has been something else that as we get more and more data-driven and more and more data-aware, even people who don't focus on fantasy baseball the way that you and I do and, and people uh, you know who make their living at it, and some people do that, but everybody seems to be at least more and more cognizant of the importance of strikeout rates and the importance of skills measures and these kinds of things. And in a weird way, it's kind of taking us back uh, in a full circle towards the days when we were playing a lot more by the seat of our pants, as it were, because the information just wasn't that good. And it, when the information is equally good for everybody, it ceases to be a playing advantage. And now you've got to look for something else, which is either more or better data or something else entirely. And I wonder whether things like how good is a guy at avoiding injury how fast does he recover from injury what kind of relationships does he have with his current manager past managers what kind of teammate is he you know all of these kind of things are start going to start coming back into the fore as we start assessing players maybe not as the primary method but certainly when you're deciding in the part of the draft where you have to choose between Colton Wong and uh, and Jason Kipnis or somebody like that and you think to yourself well assuming that their stats were projected relatively equally, there's things going on in Colton Wong's career outside of the stats that make him more appealing to me than than the alternative.
2: And keep in mind that every manager, if you were to rank all the managers or didn't take every, every Baseball HQ subscriber and ask them to rank who they thought the best managers were, I'm very confident that the, the top of that list would be managers who are all considered to be strong personality-wise and have a good relationship with their players. Now, you get the greatest relationship in the world with somebody, I and mean, I, I could be on a baseball team and get along great with everybody, and I'd hit 120 because you know, I'm not a professional baseball player, but I may, may even hit less than 120. But the point is, the best managers today are the guys who have understand that it's such a long season, and and you need to keep the ship on, on a stable course, and and that's a big part of why you know Joe Madds a successful manager, Terry Francona is a successful manager. It looks like Cora was a really good hire with the Yankees and Joe Torrey just keeping in the biggest media market, which really become a zoo. And when things get out of hand, you know, Torrey always had a steady hand with that team. And I, I think that a was underrated part of their success. And again, it won't, if you have a bunch of lousy players, it doesn't matter how well you get along. It doesn't matter if y'all go to the same steakhouse, that that's not going to save it. But I'm not surprised that Wong seems to be thriving under a manager that he seems to connect with emotionally.
0: Well, I'm glad you've been able to connect uh, with Baseball HQ Radio emotionally and otherwise. Scott, uh, it's been great so far. Let's take a breather. We'll get you back in a few minutes. Sounds great. Scott Pianowski writes regularly for Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Well,
3: let's see. We have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who twice. is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> 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 Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy who gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first He does, base? every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. We have Jock Thompson on deck with the American League and leading off. It's the National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Los Angeles. Some big news there in their rotation. Left-hander Hyunjin Ryu was placed on the 10-day injured list with a groin injury. Uh, They recalled JT Charjois from AAA, but the bigger news probably, they also announced that Clayton Kershaw will be back. He'll make his first start on Monday. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today. How does all of this news affect the rotation?
4: Well, of course, the big news is that Kershaw is back. Um, The the, Reportedly, this injury to Ryu is not nearly as bad as the growing tear that he suffered last year that shelved him for three months in 2018, but a disappointment certainly to uh, his owners uh, following a promising start to the season. Uh, No timetable yet on his return. Uh, With some downtime, is already baked uh, into his projection, as with most of the uh, LA pitchers. Uh, We'll ding him the minimum until we learn more. Uh, Replacement Charwab will log his first 2019 innings as part of the bullpen shovel, so no change there. The Really, the only effect at the moment is that uh, Julio Urias was expected to go to the pen after his start uh, on Friday, uh, but with uh, Ryu out, we'll probably get at least one more start, uh, looking now like the 18th uh, would get another start before he heads to the bullpen uh, once Rich Hill rejoins the rotation. So, uh, Ryu to the IL, Urias gets an additional start, and Kershaw back, and that's what things are looking like at the moment.
0: And Rich Hill, I think, is next weekend, so there's uh, not much chance that uh, Urias gets a second turn. Unless, of course, Rich Hill has some kind of problem in his return. It wouldn't be the first time for him.
4: No, it would not be the first time for him. And with Rich Hill uh, and with Kershaw, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we, we never know whether they'll make their next turn or not. So uh, it's always in the Dodger uh, fl- a pen of fluid situation and one to stay on top of.
0: In New York, uh, after some early-season injuries, they had some questions at third base, but J.D. Davis seems to have solved those problems with a really hot start. But, of course, it's only 25 at-bats, which is a pretty small sample, so the question is whether he can hang on, especially since, as I said, the Mets are going to have some proven veterans lining up to come back from the injured list. Alain DeLeonardis analyzes the rosters in the National League East for playing time tomorrow at Baseball HQ. Could Davis hold this third-base job in the long term?
4: Yes, after all the offseason and spring training speculation surrounding the Mets' third base job, uh, manager Mickey Calloway seems to have settled on J.D. Davis. Uh, and he started six of the Mets' first nine games at third base, appeared as a pinch hitter in two other contests, and paid early dividends at the plate. Six runs, two home runs, four RBIs, three walks, six strikeouts, and 25 at-bats. Good for a 280, 357, 600 triple slash. So that's not bad at all. Davis put up some very gaudy numbers in AAA last year. 342, 406, 583, and 333 at-bats. So the Mets hope he started making the adjustment to Major League Baseball. Um, Jeff McNeil has settled into a true utility role. Davis will have to fend off the likes of Todd Frazier and Jed Lowry as they come back from the I.L. Uh, Frazier appears to be ahead of Lowry. Uh, Lowry has not yet started running. So as of April 8th, Frazier has collected two hits and 12 at-bats at single-A St. Lucie probably stay down for another week to get up to speed. Hard to say exactly how the Mets will incorporate him into the roster. Uh, Davis's solid start, uh, along with impressive performances by both Peter Alonzo at first base and Dominic Smith at first base, have made things kind of interesting and a little bit crowded in the Met infield. Uh, writing on Twitter, Tim Britton of The Athletic reports that Frazier is scheduled to play four innings at shortstop on April 9th. If Frazier can hack it at short, one possibility would have the Mets sitting down uh, Louis Guillermet when they activate Frazier. Uh, Frazier would then be the backup at shortstop, and the Mets could keep Davis on the Major League roster. As crowded the situation might get upon Frazier's return, it could be doubly so when Lowry is healthy. Uh, Lowry's still without a timetable, though, so the Mets won't have to solve that problem for a little while. And if their infields keep hitting, these are uh, really high-rent problems to have and good problems to have.
0: Yeah, they are, but it makes life difficult for fantasy owners when you're trying to calculate which guy to grab, which guy to to look at in the free agent pool if you're playing in a relatively shallow league with so many moving parts. It's uh, really hard to to figure out which way to which way to step and it could be a really important choice because if you choose Davis and he goes into a slump at the same time that that Todd Frazier is back and all of a sudden the manager gets nervous and says, you know, maybe, maybe we need to go with the stable hand here. There's, uh, there's that possibility. And then the other possibility is that, you know, you uh, pick up Todd Frazier and and let go of JD Davis on the expectation that he can't maintain this, this pace. And he does maintain this pace, which means again, there's an opportunity to make a wrong decision as well as a right one. It's tough.
4: It is tough. It's especially tough on fantasy owners when there are so many parts of the manager can choose from And the manager gets the ballpark and say to these guys, "How you feeling tonight?" Decide what I'm just to sit for, for a day's rest. And uh, you're not going to know that as a fantasy owner ahead of time. So, uh, it is certainly a difficult fantasy kind of situation.
0: A similar sort of thing in Colorado, Nick. Uh, They have, right from the start of the year, they've had more players more decent players in fact than they've had spots to play them in with uh they had all, all of the situations going on with ryan mcmahon and garrett hampson and uh, uh, ian desmond and uh, and all of these guys who could play all these different positions and where were they all going to fit in and of course it's such a conundrum for fantasy owners and there should have been a little clarity this week when david Dahl, the outfielder was put on the 10-day il uh, they recalled Jonathan Deza, he's an outfielder from AAA. Rob Carroll covers Colorado for playing time today. As I said, it's already a bit of a merry-go-round in the Colorado lineup, so what's the latest with this Dahl information?
4: Well, longtime time Dahl watchers, knowing he was on the deal for 231 days in 2017 and 2018 with rib cage and foot injuries, have to be really holding their breath with this latest one because uh, Dahl has been a, a frequent uh, IL resident. Uh, this lady's move, however, appears more precautionary in nature, as he suffered what was called a slight core injury when he was swinging the bat in the April 7th game against the Dodgers. At this point, expected to miss the minimum 10 days, although the return time- timetable is still fairly open-ended. Um, fourth outfielder Ramiel Tapia, will get another shot at making an impression uh, he's failed to show much of his minor league shine, 319 300- 319- Batting average, 153 stolen bases in eight minor league seasons uh, in Colorado. Other than uh, for a period during the 2017 season, not much has gone on with Tapia. And, um, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those situations where uh, you wonder exactly what's going on and whether he's ever going to be able to transfer that promise he had in the minors to the major leagues. Um, Kolob Daza, making his major league debut, was also a 300 hitter in the minors. Uh, Unlike Tapia, he swings from the right side. He hasn't shown much power or speed. Uh, And all these moving parts situations, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, as you said, they've got Garrett Hampson, they've got uh, got Ryan McMahon, not sure exactly where to play them uh, or how often to play them, and it's one of those situations where neither of them is really getting untracked uh, at this point in the majors this season. Uh, And you have to wonder if all of the lineup movement and the attempts to move people around, uh, doesn't make it difficult on a young player in terms of getting uh, getting his feet under him uh, at this point in the year. Uh, unless Dahl's injury lingers, we don't want to jinx him, but uh, playing time changes at the moment are going to be minimal uh, for us in terms of our projections.
0: Yeah, boy, it's one of those things that you kind of have to almost these days build it into your planning at the, uh, at the draft stage or at the pre-draft stage when you look at these guys in Colorado and you say, boy, there's a few guys on this roster I wouldn't mind looking at, but then you think to yourself, but they've got so many of them in all of these these ways that they can be slotted in. And Colorado has the reputation, of course, as being very difficult as far as young players are concerned. Uh, it seems like they'd rather sign an old veteran like uh, Mark Reynolds, for instance, in this case, and put him into the lineup at the expense of their young players. And the and you know we as owners look at these young guys and think you know all they need is a chance. But Colorado seems very leery about giving them any kind of chance and and gives them very short leashes. So, uh, you know, uh, you get a, a one-week run with a with a few strikeouts and a few groundouts and not much production. All of a sudden, boom, you're, you're off the lineup and uh, we'll go back to Ian Desmond or some other, uh, you know, antiquated guy. It's real tough, again, uh, to figure out what's going on in these kind of teams. And maybe that's a reason to just avoid them altogether.
4: You are maybe, and you hit something... Uh, right there that's that's worth considering that we can't see as as fantasy owners and that is what the manager sees on the field Uh, a ground out versus a fly out in a critical situation or not bunting or putting the ball on the ground when you need to in a critical situation those kinds of things don't show up in the box score but the manager sees those that's been one of the knocks against tapia is hitting the ball uh, certainly where it needs to be hit uh, in critical situations more so perhaps even than getting on base
0: of course mind you if managers start getting angry at guys for striking out in key situations they're going to put half the half of major league baseball is going to be in the minors because that's all they do these days it seems. Absolutely. In Chicago, left-hander John Lester was put on the 10-day I.L. because he's got a strained left hamstring. They made the move retroactive to Tuesday, but he's out. And the Cubs promoted left-hander uh, Tim Collins, a name from the past, from AAA. Tom Kephart covers the Cubs for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Now, we know Tim Collins, long-time reliever, so he's not going to get any starts. So who's going to get John Lester's innings in the Cubs rotation?
4: Well, the likely rotation replacement, Mike Montgomery, is already sidelined. So the initial substitute is going to be right-handed pitcher Tyler Chatwood. Uh, Chatwood was arguably the National League's least effective starting pitcher in 2018. Made 20 starts among 24 appearances. Uh, Despite a negative BPV and a sub 1.0 command, he has struggled with control and command throughout his career. Uh, A career 1.3 command, 4.7 control, 18 BPV, uh, 4.64 XERA. I would stay far away from him. Uh, reliever Collins uh, also has control and command, and has found those things challenging. Uh, career 4.5 control, 1.3 command, uh, career 47 BPV, and a 4.59 XDRA. So it's safe to ignore him uh, working out of the bullpen.
0: And when I see that uh, sub one command ratio, command ratio, strikeouts to walks, and if it's under one, basically what that means is more walks than strikeouts.
4: That's right, exactly. More walks and strikeouts, not a good thing at all. Uh, something you definitely want to avoid uh, on your on your roster.
0: And finally, Nick, the San Francisco Giants had an interleague trade last week with Kevin Pillar, and they've made another one. They acquired uh, first base outfielder uh, Tyler Austin from Minnesota for a minor leaguer. Rob Carroll covers the Giants for playing time today. Where does Tyler Austin fit into the Giants roster?
4: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, our take from the, uh, from the 2019 forecaster at Austin's entry, it says, low batting average power sources like this will always be available if needed. Uh, the Giants apparently figured they needed one. Uh, they're in the bottom four of all major league teams in, in significant power categories, home runs, slugging, OPS. So clearly they needed somebody, and they went out and find, found Tyler Austin available. Uh, Austin is generously listed as a first baseman outfielder. He hasn't played the outfield since late 2017. As a member of the Yankees, he'll spell Blander and Belt at first base, uh, might push Belt to left field, where he played 11 times in 2018. And of course, that causes another ripple in the San Francisco outfield, uh, where, where it already looks like nothing like it did on opening day, uh, just two weeks ago. Since joining the Giants, Kevin Pillar has been manning center field. Steven Duggar has moved to right. Uh, left field is where most of the job sharing is likely to take place. A Belt now joins Gerardo Parra in the mix, and Austin could see time in the outfield as well. So left field could be kind of a moving target for a while. Getting back to Austin, uh, 17 home runs and 244 at-bats for New York and Minnesota in 2018. More than any giant could muster in twice the number of at-bats. So it looks like he may have found a home where he can be useful. Uh, Career power index is 165, 203 versus left-handers. Uh, 9.57 OPS versus left-handers, 300 points higher than when he faces right-handers. There are huge holes in his swing, A uh, 60% lifetime contact rate, walk rate is just okay. So his 233 batting average, 294 on on-base average shows very little sign of nudging upward. Um, you know, the kind of guy who may be useful if you're a major league manager, can plug him in in the right places uh, as a fantasy manager when you probably can't platoon him. Uh, perhaps more of a more of a problem uh connor joe was the roster casualty when austin was added uh, so there's uh not much indication at the moment that the san francisco roster caliber car- carousel is going to slow down may even get a bit worse uh with austin joining the mix
0: i have to say i have a brandon belt share in one of my leagues and uh he started off fairly well and since kind of slipped down to mediocre, kind of one of those guys in the middle, 700-ish OPS, but his platoon splits are exactly the opposite of Austin's. Uh, he's got a 911 OPS this year against right-handed pitching, 670 against left, and he's always been sort of mid to high 800s against right-handed pitching and sort of 600s against uh, left-handers except for a couple of years earlier in his career. It looks like, to me, it looks like a, just a completely natural platoon situation with Austin p- playing against left-handed pitching and, uh, and Brandon Belt against right-handed. And sometimes we look at that and we say, oh, darn it, you know, I'm going to lose all those, uh, especially in Belt's case, I'm going to lose all those uh, plate appearances against the, the left-handed side, which means his counting stats are going to go down. But then you have to say, yeah, but chances are his batting average is going to go way up because he's going to benefit from not having to hit against same-side pitching.
4: Right, absolutely. I mean, a guy who's on the, on the, on the strong side of a platoon may be actually more valuable on your roster than a guy who struggles and, and uh, against left-handers and is, is in there every day against left-handers and pulling the batting average way down. So I agree with you. This actually could help Brandon Belt as a fantasy asset if he doesn't have to face the left-handed pitchers as often.
0: It's all very interesting. Uh, it seems like uh, as we go, Nick, that uh, by the end of the season, everybody in the, in the major leagues is going to be on the injured list, and we're, we're going to be watching, I don't know, AAA guys or Little League guys. I don't know what's going on. I'll be talking about injuries a little later on in the show in Master Notes. So uh, it's, it's a lot of news, most of it bad. So thanks for bringing it to us, and we'll talk to you again next week.
4: All right. Thank you, Patrick. Hopefully next, year's, next uh, week's news might be a little bit better than what we've been dealing with so far.
0: Well, maybe we'll have a good outing by Clayton Kershaw, maybe two, because he's going to start Monday. That would put him on track for Friday or Saturday as well. So maybe, uh, maybe he throws a no-hitter in a perfect game and we have something to get excited about. There we go. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst for BaseballHQ.com. He covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. On we go to the American League Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? I'm doing fine, certainly doing better than most of the teams out there. The injuries are just it's just astonishing jock and uh, especially in cleveland now starting pitcher mike clevenger's gone on the dl he'll be out at least six to eight weeks they're calling it an upper back strain which i guess may be the only good news in the story for him because it's not an arm problem but he threw 200 innings last year with a 302 era hadn't given up an earned run at all in his first 12 innings this year and he really did look dominant the couple of times i watched him this is a really big loss for cleveland and a really big loss for fantasy owners Tom Kephart wrote up the story for playing time today. What's Cleveland going to do?
2: You know, it comes at an awful time, too, given their offensive problems, because they don't have anybody that really looks ready to step in. The uh, The most logical replacement uh, would seem to be um, someone like Adam Plutko, who pitched some innings for them last year, I think uh, 77. Uh, he, he was pretty mediocre uh, last year, Five twenty eight ERA. Um, um, it sounds like... Uh, Jeffrey Rodriguez is going to get the first opportunity. This is a guy they acquired from Washington during the offseason. He's got a big arm, but he hasn't been able to turn it into consistent MLB production so far. He's another guy with a 5-plus CRA in and, and over 50 innings last year that included a bunch of starts for the for the Nationals. He's going to get a shot, uh, I think, against Kansas City this Saturday. Uh, it, it looks like the Indians are going to cycle a few names right now, but but... There's just nothing that jumps out that fantasy owners should, should chase. And, and I had to check back because their, their top pitching prospect, a guy named Tristan McKenzie, who I think you're, you're, you're familiar with, I remember him tossing about 100 innings last year uh, at, at the end of the season in, in A, and I was wondering if he was going to be available. He's also injured with back issues. He's not scheduled to pitch until late May or early June. So not a lot of good news for Cleveland on the pitching front right now.
0: Yeah, certainly not a lot of good news for uh, for fantasy owners either as far as uh, what the Cleveland Indians might be bringing back to the table as far as pitching goes to replace Mike Clevenger. It's just, you have to really look at it and say it's a dead loss really for, for fantasy owners because they're just going to have to look elsewhere. Uh, and in only leagues especially, it's going to be catastrophic uh, Similar news uh, for Luis Severino owners, uh, another MRI diagnosed a lat strain after he struggled playing long toss in his rehab program. Now they're not saying he's not even going to throw a ball again for another six weeks, which puts him into mid-June before he gets back into the rotation and that's if everything goes perfectly and we have to start thinking, Jock, things are not going perfectly for Luis Severino. If he has no more setbacks, you're looking at mid-June, could be the all-star breaker later if there's any problems at all. Matt Dodge covered the Yankees for playing time to Today, what are they going to do?
2: Yeah, we keep whittling down Severino's uh, projected innings pitched. Uh, it looks like uh, it's almost certain that the first half is a lost one. Now we got to wait and see on the second half. Um, uh, Domingo German, right now, his his rotation spot at least looks secure today. Uh, he's he's had two wins in two games. He's only given up two runs in eleven innings. But his opponents haven't been that great. I don't think that Baltimore and Detroit prove anything uh, and as Matt notes, uh, he struggled with the walks he's, he's given up seven walks so far and the Yankees are a little different than Cleveland. Uh, they've got a little bit of pitching depth more than most teams and, and I don't think they're going to stay too patient if he't if he, uh, if he doesn't show some improvement particularly as they get and in, get into that uh, really a lot tougher ALE schedule. They've got Gio Gonzalez, Luis Sessa, and, uh, and Jonathan Cigna uh, for starts. If he struggles, CC Sabathia should return at some point as well. So they have plenty of depth. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here as well.
0: Well, there's a difference between plenty of depth and plenty of good depth, however. The guy I like here is Jonathan Loessiga of the three of them. Sessa's uh, had some ups and downs over the years. Gio Gonzalez, I don't know. Jock, uh, when you think of Gio Gonzalez, he's been around a while. He's never been really a terrific pitcher. He's sometimes been a little above average, but not great.
3: No, that's
2: right. And if you're going to roster him, you you can't be looking for ratio help. What you're probably looking for is wins and and strikeout help to to some degree. But, yeah, his skills have deteriorated. He's now in his late 30s. It's not the Gio Gonzalez uh, that we've seen probably in his younger years.
0: In Texas, the Rangers first baseman Ronald Guzman, who is having a pretty good start, he's on the 10-day DL, or IL as they call it now, a strained hamstring for him. They called up uh, th- corner man Patrick Wisdom as his replacement, and he actually got into the lineup. Rod Trusdell covered this story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. And so the first question, I guess, is uh, what about Patrick Wisdom? The skill set was analyzed in the call-up space. Do we know anything about him? Is he worth rostering?
2: Yeah, he was actually up for the Cardinals last year. Uh, he made his major league debut. And he didn't do that badly. He hit 260 with four home runs and just 50 at bats. But, but if you look a little deeper here, that's a pretty small sample. And this is a guy who's uh, he's almost 28. Uh, he struggled with contact and, and getting to any real power throughout his minor league career. Um, and, he, and he really struggled in the Cactus League this year. I, I looked at him real carefully, as I do most St. Louis players, because the Cardinals always have a have this ability of producing some of these guys. But uh, I'm just not seeing anything, much of anything, that's going to make me run to the waiver wire. He, he still has a whole bunch to prove. He's going to get some time, it looks like, with uh, with Guzman out. Guzman's going to be out now for a month, it sounds like. So um, Wisdom's going to get an opportunity, but uh, I'm staying away from now.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that he's coming from the St. Louis system. They're pretty good at developing players. Is it any concern to you that because the organization is pretty good at developing players, they're also pretty good at figuring out which players they don't want anymore? And there's a reason for that. And the, when a good organization lets a guy go, it, it really puts a red flag up for me.
2: Oh, sure. I didn't go back to, to figure out what, what what which trade he came over in, but uh, you're absolutely right. When Tampa Bay lets go of a player, or requires a player, it's another organization that I that I kind of pay attention to because they seem to have pretty good luck and, and it's probably more than that they're, they're really good at analyzing skills and figuring out where where a player is going in in their development.
0: Could this be if uh, Patrick Wisdom doesn't work out could this be the latest starting gun for the career of Willie Calhoun?
2: Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, Calhoun hasn't been awful at AAA uh, so far. He's actually managed to walk eight times in 37 plate appearances. That's that's pretty healthy, and just three just three strikeouts so far. He's hitting .276, but plate skills aren't and haven't been his problem. It's been the disappearance of his home run power and his, his stroke. Uh, um, he has just one home run to date, and Calhoun's other liabilities as a poor defender and a and an awfully slow base runner aren't going to allow him to become a major league regular unless he can find those home runs again. I think the Rangers are going to leave him there until he does uh, beyond a rebound from Calhoun that would put him in left field and move Gallo to first base. There's just not a lot of intriguing uh, major league ready depth in Texas. Uh, you're right to mention Calhoun, but uh, boy, it, it, it seems like his power is just falling off the cliff. I don't know where it's gone.
0: It's interesting when that kind of thing happens and really hard to understand because power is one of those core skills. You think once you've got it, you have it for life. Uh, They also have a Rod Trusdell reports, uh, Chicago White Sox, former third baseman, uh, now at triple A, Matt Davidson, but he's not on the 40 man roster, which means they would, if they wanted to call him up and give him a shot, then they'd have to start winkling around with other guys on the roster. So uh, are we looking at Matt Davidson at all?
2: Yeah, at some point they will. Remember, this is a rebuilding team, and Matt Davidson is, what, 31, 32 years old already. He's pretty much bench depth. I don't think they want to waste that too early in the, in the year. They, they may need it later on. Um, I'm not sure about Davidson's future with anyone right now. If he does come up and get, get some playing time, he's going to hit some home runs, and he's going to kill your batting average. We know that much about Matt Davidson.
0: In Detroit, Matt Moore was off to a pretty good start and all of a sudden he's on the uh, injured list as well. They're calling it a meniscus injury in his right knee and they're not saying that there's any time of uh, estimated return. All of this does not sound good for Matt Moore and his owners, not that they're probably too numerous, but but I bet just some people were looking at Matt Moore or may already have picked him up in fantasy leagues after the uh, first couple of good starts. So what are fantasy owners going to do? What are the Tigers going to do without Matt Moore?
2: Yeah, given the state of pitching these days, you almost have to run to the waiver wire to pick up Matt Moore, at least before this injury. His, uh, I mean, it's only been two games, but his velocity was up picking. He was getting more swinging strikes. He hadn't given up a run in in, uh, in his first 10 innings. This is a real big blow to the Tigers because he was their best pitcher, I think, early on, him and, I should say, Matt Wood. Um, but, um, um they're gonna they're gonna give Daniel Norris another chance, and if we're gonna talk about retread pitchers who were once prospects. Uh, Norris was a lot like Matt Moore in that he was a consensus top ten prospect about four or five years ago. He struggled with injuries. His velocity has slipped. He's never uh, he's never returned to what he was. Uh, I would be staying away here. Um, his velocity is still down. Looking at his uh, early numbers in the league, five innings he's throwing about ninety one miles an hour. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, his pedigree makes him watchable like a lot of these guys. But uh, now I would be I would be staying away.
0: And so we fall, find ourselves falling back into another situation, the same as uh, with the other pitchers we've talked about. They go on the uh, injured list, and really there's nothing coming back to replace them. And so the the, qual- the quality of the entire pool is being diminished slowly but surely. I don't think Matt Moore's in the same realm as Luis Severino and those kind of guys, but it is a loss, especially if he was uh, figuring things out. And it leaves fantasy owners sitting there staring into space, and then that puts me in mind of Irvin Santana. We talked about him last week a little bit. Uh, he's signed with the White Sox. He finally got a start, and he just looked terrible. But he's he's not hurt. And so at some point, do we have to say Irvin Santana might be worth a look, even though he looked really bad in his first outing uh, for Chicago?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I was been watching Irvin Santana since last year because he was coming back from a finger injury, and you and I talked, I think, offline a couple of weeks ago. He had actually been pretty good three of his last four seasons before 2018, and I figured with a finger injury, how hard would it be for him to come back? Well, I learned because he was awful in five starts. He had an ERA over eight. Um, I watched his first start this year. Nothing much has changed. His velocity is over 90 miles an hour again, which is an improvement. But in his best years, uh, he was picking around 93 miles an hour, and he's still only throwing 90, and he got blasted uh, this this last start. I will watch for all kinds of pitchers, but I am starting to get pessimistic about Urban Santana. That there's something else going on here more than the finger. He just have, hasn't recovered any of his skills since since the finger surgery, since offseason finger surgery in 2018.
0: Could this be one of those things, Jacques, where where we look at it and we go, eh, "It's not an elbow. That's good. It's not a shoulder. That's pretty good. It's not even a wrist. That's pretty good," and and you say. It's only a finger, but when you think about the role that guys' fingers play in in their ability to pitch, to put spin on the ball, to control the ball with fine motor control, all of these kind of things, I think of guys like Aaron Sanchez who had the blister issues, other guys who had blister and finger problems. I think it can be a lot worse than we sometimes appreciate it to be.
2: Oh, uh, There's zero doubt about that. I think Urban Santana is pretty much proof, proof positive. Uh, and yeah, you're right, I think we do... I think we do tend to shy away from pitchers with shoulder and elbow problems because these things tend to last and tend to, tend to really hamper skills. We don't have a lot of experience in finger problems other than the blister, the blister issues you're talking about. I think this was some sort of a tendon problem that Santana had. And uh, you just erroneously assume that uh, uh, once the surgery is over, once certain rehab is going on at the elbow and the shoulder or or, or sound, uh, he's going to come back. But, yeah, the thing about santana is that he's 36 years old so it, you know he, he might be uh he might be finding it a little a little more problematic to come back physically from his layoff than, uh, um, than, a, than a younger pitcher might be um, um, i i'll keep one eye on him still but uh when a team like the white sox uh, there's there's a lot of other guys i'm more interested in
0: yeah uh, it's one of those situations where we again we look at it and we think there's Kind of reasons or or reasons to be hopeful, but not reasons to be optimistic. If you know what I mean, like realistically, you have to look at it and go that this is now falling into the realm of very suspicious. His uh, his start this year, his fastball topped out under ninety one miles an hour. Actually, I just checked, and the, here's another thing that really has me a little bit concerned. Over the last four years, and these are years when you mentioned he was pitching really well and and very effectively, he was throwing fourteen to twelve percent uh, change ups. And in his first start back, he's only thrown under 7% change-ups in that start. I know it's only one game, and maybe it's early and cold and all those other kind of things, but if it's a situation where he relies on finger nuance, the fine control of his fingers to get that change-up to go over the plate, or to just get it thrown at all, and all of a sudden he's got this finger issue which is cured but not entirely cured. Maybe it's maybe it just hurts to throw changeups. and if he can't throw a change-up, he's a two-pitch pitcher and not that good of a two-pitch pitcher at that.
2: Yeah, all good points, and we're not going to know anything more about it until we see him in another few starts, and unless he improves, he's not going to get with another few starts. So I'm going to be watching him from the sidelines right now.
0: I drafted Irvin Santana in the reserve of the American League tout, and I'll leave him on reserve for another couple of starts before I cut bait and see if I can find something better. But since we've been talking about reclamation projects and comebacks, I saw Manny Benuelos was on the depth chart at Baseball HQ, and they're projecting some innings for Manny Benuelos So is he worth grabbing or watching or ignoring?
2: Yeah, this is another guy, again, who was a, a, a consensus top 100 prospect long ago when he was drafted by the Yankees, uh, had some, uh, I believe it was shoulder problems. Uh, never quite made it out of the minors. I think his, uh, made his major league debut in 2015 and now in 2019 is the next time he's pitching in the majors in the smallest of samples. He's pitched seven innings He, he struck out eight hitters. His, uh, control has been decent. Um, he's getting, uh, 12%, uh, swinging strike rate and, uh, he's going to get opportunity in Chicago. So, uh, I, I'm not going to go out and, and run for him again, not on a team like the White Sox, but I am looking at him. Um, he's, he's only given up uh, uh, three runs in those seven innings, so if, if he gets opportunity and he can succeed, who knows?
0: Yeah, he's, he had, uh, when he was pitching for the Braves, he had a little home run trouble and uh, he gave up a home run in that uh, start so far this year. So uh, again, this is one of those situations where it depends on the depth of your league, how interested you have to be in a guy like Manny Banuelos or any of these uh, sort of second guys behind the guys we've been talking about. But if you're looking at American League only, you really do have to consider guys like this and you really do have to throw the dice sometimes.
2: Yeah, you kind of do, and you kind of got to take your hints where you can get them. I have noticed that his velocity has picked up a little bit. He's throwing his fastball above ninety-one. Again, this isn't great, and and it's and it is. It's too hard to, to read into a small sample, but um, you look for you look for right, glimmers of hope anytime you can any place you can find them when you're talking about pitching these days.
0: Well, it's always fun talking with you about pitching these days, Jock. Uh, Hopefully we'll have some better news next week and not another cascade of injuries, but we'll see what happens over the next seven days, and I'll talk to you again next week.
2: Yeah, no kidding, PD. We'll talk to you then.
0: Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis, a regular columnist on the site, and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield makes some early snap judgments on batters, including Yandy Diaz and Domingo Santana, among others. In the GM's office, Baseball HQ co-general manager Brent Hershey talks about waiting out April. And in scouting, the Daily Call-Ups report this week covers recent call-ups including Pittsburgh second baseman Kevin Kramer, San Diego right-hander Pedro Avila, San Diego second baseman Luis Urias, and all the prospects who are hitting the big leagues. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes. News updates in playing time today. Roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have those buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis, injury coverage, plus tools like the player projections, daily dashboards, leading indicators, all kinds of content and tools you can use to improve your team and win your league. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. On Tuesday at your uh, Yahoo Sports column, you wrote about Seattle first baseman slash DH, and I think more slash DH than first baseman. Dan Vogelback, another one of those guys who always seem to be this close to landing a full-time job. They always He seems to always have the good spring training, play real well at AAA, and then not live up to it at the major league level. He's doing it again, except now he started the year doing pretty well. What's there to like about him this season that hasn't been there in the past season?
2: Oh, getting a chance to play. I mean, remember he had such a limited, you know, opportunity um, blocked, of course, with the Cubs, and then you know, last year with Seattle. What did he get? Eighty-seven at bats. I mean, that, that doesn't really tell us anything. And of course, you know, he has you know forty plate appearances so, so far this year. So who's to say what's real and what isn't? But. Um, a guy, I, I mentioned uh, Jesus Aguilar earlier, and you know, Vogelbach reminds me a lot of Aguilar And that he always hit in the minors. Um, his, his AAA career stats were 291, 411, 496. That, that plays. Um, maybe Seattle's lineup is better than we thought. Um, his walks and strikeouts are almost even, which is something I, I love to see. Um, seems like a modern hitter, just never had a place to play. In Chicago and even Seattle, there's a little bit of a logjam. You know, Encarnacion they basically want a DH. Uh, Jay Bruce is going to play first base a lot of the time. When they do move Bruce to the outfield, that means a, a reasonably good outfielder is in the lineup. So, so Vogelback probably won't play every day, but I just think he's just been a guy who just needs a chance to play, and he's getting it now. And I see no reason why he can't be a you know 280, 25, 30 home run guy. I think he really could be this year's Adrian Aguilar.
1: At
0: the same time, though, what are the uh, signs that are not so positive for, for Dan Ah,
1: uh, Well,
2: I mean, he's lefty, so you, you worry about be, be able to hit left-handed pitching. I mean, last year, if you can get past the fact that he was 25 at AAA, 290, 434, 545, he had 77 walks and 59 strikeouts. If he were 21 years old, everybody would be jumping up and down over him. The, the only thing I think is negative about him is that once somebody gets into their mid twenties and hasn't established anything, then people just decide, well, maybe he's not that good. You know, with with Vogelback the, the really easy tag to make is, oh, he's a quad A player, really good AAA guy, you know, but maybe doesn't make it in the majors. But he's never had a chance to play. I, again, he had eighty seven at bats last year. I'm, I'm look, I have no Vogelback. I, I didn't draft him, and I wasn't quick to the trigger to get him. And I, I think that's a big mistake. I think there's an excellent chance he's going to be good all season. I you know, I, I, what's not to like here? He just hasn't had a chance to play.
0: In that column, you also said that a voice you trust, uh, and you didn't say who it was, and I'll hold uh, l- allow you to maintain anonymity here if you like, but uh, told you to get shares in Joey Gallo this year, and you didn't. And Gallo is looking really more like a blue chipper than ever, especially with the uh, strikeouts. What makes you think this might be the year for Joey Gallo?
2: Yeah, it's all walks and strikeouts. And again, I'm banging this drum over and over again. But those, those walk and strikeout numbers, those those plate discipline numbers stabilize really quickly. And we all know with Gallo, I mean, ironically enough, he's actually hitting 189 even with the improved walks and strikeouts. But everybody knows the power. He's hit 40 home runs the last couple of seasons, and it's a really good place to hit. It's just a matter of we, we always thought, geez, if he just didn't strike out so much, maybe he could hit – Two thirty, two forty. 240, maybe he could be Adam Dunn, you know, the good version, rather than you know, Adam Dunn, the, the year he hit 156 for the White Sox, but uh, he actually reminds me a lot of Dunn, too. Same body type as well. Um, I was curious to see if, if he'd been moving um, where he hits the ball, but that hasn't changed. He, he's pulling the ball a lot. We know he's one of the players they'll most aggressively shift on, and I, I still think he may want to adjust to that. Um, and Some people may say, well, why would you want Joey Gallo not to pull the ball it's when he hits home runs? But I think there's 20 or 30 points to be gained if he could learn to maybe bunt or just slap the ball out to left field every once in a while. There's nothing wrong with taking a free hit, and they're certainly trying to give it to him. But um, I'm encouraged by the walk strikeout rate, and because he's hitting under 200, he's actually somebody I may quietly try to get in trade. You don't you don't go to the Joe Gallo owner and say, "Hey, I'm interested in Gallo. Uh, you probably want to get rid of him, so trade him to me." That doesn't work. You go to somebody and say, "Oh." Yeah, you seem to have uh, a lot of power on your team, or you seem to be really deep at this position or that position. I need that. You know, I'm deep in this other spot that you might need. That's how trades are generally made. You have to find the win-win. You have to kind of tiptoe into what you're looking for. I think it's still a good time to go, to maybe kick the tires on a gallo trade.
0: Well, when do you usually start kicking the tires and, and making feelers and getting ideas out there in your leagues as far as trades go?
2: great question. In fact, I think, if, if I remember correctly, I think that's what Todd Zola asked for the Tout Wars table this week. So, uh, if you check the Tout Wars website on Sunday or Monday, there'll be a bunch of touts answering that question. I don't think there's any wrong time to trade, because we're, you know baseball is, it's a, a butterfly is flying around, and just when you think you know where the butterfly is and you, you swing the net at it, it jumps somewhere else. You know the Things are always changing. Players are getting healthy or hurt. They're trying new things that work or don't work. Uh, they're scrapping things. that playing time changes. You know, the weather changes. Atmosphere changes. You know, they can get traded. All that stuff. So, um, to me, it's it's about most of the time. It's challenge trades happen in some leagues, but for the most part, it's not going to be. Hey, I have a pitcher. You have a pitcher. I dare you that this guy's better than that guy. Let's make a trade. I think usually the way people make trades, at least the leagues that I'm in, it has to be need based. It has to be. I want to trade from surplus. I want to trade to to fill a need. You find somebody who matches up, and then that's how you get the relationships through, and that's how you get the trades done. And you know, I I think teams at any point in the season you can have a surplus. Any point in the season you can find somebody. Also, once the standings have personality to them, you know, to some people that may not be till June. To some people that may be May fifteenth. To some people that be May May first. I think it's really important to identify once somebody starts to separate themselves near the bottom of the standings. You got to take the temperature of that guy. You got to make sure you know what he's where, what he's thinking, and you know what does he need, what does he, what does he have to give you? Because that that's somebody who may be motivated. They may just want to do something different, just for the sake of having different players. So you need to be once once the standings have personality. And again, that's a very uh, shifting line for everybody. I think that's when you really need to take the temperature of your league, especially the people near the bottom, because they may be more motivated to change something, even if it's just for the sake of change.
0: Getting back to Joey Gallo, uh, you mentioned that his uh – walk rate has really increased a lot. And indeed it has in the early going this year. I think it's up over 20% now, which is really an astonishingly high level, even for him, because he's always been pretty good at drawing walks, sort of 14, 15%, uh, all the way up over 20 is quite something. And the strikeout rate is still high, but not nearly as high. But my my curiosity here for you is how trusting are you at this early stage that this is not just a temporary blip because again of what we know about stabilization rates and so forth. How confident do you feel that Joey Gallo has actually changed something about his approach versus just happens to have been walked by a lot of poor pitchers so far? You know, has been a little more careful not to swing and miss, but uh, sooner or later, you know, uh, uh, fish got to swim and birds got to fly kind of thing.
2: Two things. One is that even though they're not at a stabilization point yet, the walks and strikers do stabilize quickly. And two, because somebody, again, you know, maybe. It's back to attribution and why, why is anything true and what do we attribute it to. My source told me that this was going to happen, and I believe in the person who told me this.
0: Consider the source, right? Are there any other uh, hitters on the right side of the strikeout and walk uh, situation that you've seen so far this season?
2: Uh, you know, one fascinating guy is, is Michael Franco, and I know part of his – in fact, I think he has the best walk to strikeout rate in the league right now and he's always been a pretty good contact hitter for a power guy and, and i know that the walks we can't completely take at face value because he bats in front of the pitcher in philadelphia and that's just always a great place to draw walks because they'll either pitch around you or sometimes intentionally walk you you know, based on the shape of the inning but uh, he's off to a really good start and you know of course you always wonder if if he keeps it up maybe that could lead to a promotion in the lineup. Uh, Carl Santana has often been a, a walk-strikeout guy. Uh, we're going to talk about Alex Gordon in a second. He's off to a really good start. Um, Matt Chapman, one of my absolute favorite players. His defense is just angelic, but he's uh, he's really good on the walk-strikeout rate. And then Tommy LaStella, I don't know what to make of it. He's hit three home runs, and he's got really good walk-strikeout numbers. He's got a really bad BABIP. Now, part of that is because the home runs don't help the BABIP. But I always wondered why that was so. Gene McCaffrey would agree with me, but um, those are some of the guys who are off to really good starts. Some of the non-obvious guys. You don't need to know that Mike Trout is great in this area or Mookie Betts or somebody like that. But uh, there are a few names that have percolated that I'm keeping an eye on.
0: Plus, uh, Trout and Betts pretty near their ceilings anyway. There's not not a lot of room to grow for either of them in uh, in those key metrics. But uh, when we're talking about Michael Franco, uh I think this is one of the more interesting stories of the year because he's really cut his strikeout rate. It's typically been in the mid teens, the mid low to mid teens and it's down under 5% this year. And again, I don't expect he's going to finish the year at 4.3% strikeouts. So it just it seems so unlikely, but at the same time it's such a big jump that I kind of think that he may just have decided to stop striking out less and to start taking more pitches. And he's, uh, you know, we can account for some of the walk growth. As you said, he's batting eighth, so the, they're pitching around him and he knows that, these kind of things. But here's a guy in 2016 through 18 was in the 6 in the to 7% range. This year he's over 21. He's tripled his walk rate. And that's not something that happens by accident in the short run, or is it?
2: No, absolutely. Um, and also, there's a little bit of post-hype to, to Franco, too. He came up, there was some buzz around him. Uh, he had some injuries. He had he had one season that was significantly down from his level of production. And then, of course, Kingery was around, and, and he got signed to a big contract. They bought out his arbitration years, so the, the thought was, was, is Franco even a starter? Is he even a long-term solution here? How is the infield going to shake out? And, um, and then last year, he, he had almost no runs scored. And that, that I always get frustrated by players like that who have maybe reasonable stat production for the homers and RBIs but don't score a lot of runs, whether it's they don't run the base as well or they have a bad lineup slot. And I'm generally reluctant to get those hitters in the National League who hit in the bottom third. And I know Wong is stuck there right now, and I still do like Wong. But, I mean, a lot of times when you hit in the bottom of the lineup, just being around the pitcher, it just it kills rallies, you know. They'll bunch you over, but they give up the out. Or the pitcher just flails at three or four pitches and strikes out. Although maybe that's less of a of a factor now because the pitchers don't go deep in games. So you know, one less pitcher at bat per game. But then again, the, the teams generally don't have a lot of firepower on the bench either. So the guys who are replacing the pitcher in the lineup, aren't always, the pinch hitters aren't always that great either. But anyway, I think it's entirely possible that Frank, I mean, look, he's at a point where it's not that I would pricing growth to his price, but I have to be open-minded that he could improve at the age that he's at. And, and again, maybe it's just a, a post-type guy who took a while to figure out who he was, and maybe he's going to have a season I didn't see coming before the season, but I have to adjust to once some of these things start happening. And, again, that walk rate, the way it's spiked, and the fact that will stabilize around 100 at-bats, I mean, I think we have to take it seriously.
0: And he's halfway there. Uh, The other thing that uh, Michael Franco – it looks really interesting to me is a real sudden big spike in fly fly ball percentage and oftentimes that is because of a conscious decision made by the player that he wants to get more loft on the ball the whole launch angle revolution as it were and everything else about his uh, profile is pretty similar to past years it's just he swapped a lot of line drives for fly balls as a result his BABIP is way down it's below 20% hit rate uh, 190 I think somewhere around there for a batting average on balls in play, which means there's either going to be a decline in what we should expect in his batting average from his usual 270-ish kind of thing, 255-270 in that range because if he hits that many fly balls, he's not going to get as many line drive base hits, and maybe I'm not going to say he's going to have a 194 Babbitt for uh, for his whole season, but it's hard to see him going from 194 to 300 if he doesn't make any adjustments to have more line drives and fewer fly balls, and if he's sold out to get more home runs, that's that's a plus. But if he's costing himself batting average, that might not be such a plus.
2: No, that's a great point. I mean, the water is getting poured into the bucket, but there's a hole in the in the bottom of the bucket, so there's certainly a trade off there.
0: You also gave a nod to Oakland reliever J. B. Wendelken, and I love this guy's name, Wendelken. You said it sounds like a, a cartoon character. You also gave a nod to Oakland reliever J.B. Wendelken, uh, and you mentioned that you thought it sounded like a cartoon character name, and it does, or some kind of uh, fairy story, kind of Rumpelstiltskin kind of name. He's 1% owned in Yahoo Leagues when you were writing, and you're part of the 1%. I have to say, I don't see any saves coming in Oakland. He's fairly far down that list, so why are you interested in uh, J.B. Wendelken?
2: Yeah, um I didn't appreciate that he went out and pitched in Baltimore, not particularly well right after I picked him up. But what I like to do once the season has two or three weeks old is look for relievers. And they're almost always, always middle relievers because anybody who gets saved, you know, people are jumping all over them. But I, I look for relievers with a lot of strikeouts and not a lot of walks. And he was one of those guys who fit that. I like the fact that they were using him regularly in multiple inning appearances, kind of as a fireman. So I thought maybe that could lead to some wins. But mostly, it's just a matter of chasing the walks and strikeouts and knowing that, you know, I think it's a mistake. It's easy to say this because Chad Green's been hit a couple times this year. But when people, when I go into some leagues and I see Chad Green go for four or five, six bucks, I always feel like I can find the next Chad Green. It's going to be, or, you know, the next Ryan Presley, who may be a little bit under owned. He's only 25% owned in Yahoo. That surprises me. But um, I feel like rather than prioritizing some of these middle relief heroes pre draft, I think you can wait and find them in the season where you get them at the absolute lowest buy-in cost, and you know, maybe in, in the case of this Oakland pitcher, he, he won't have any staying power, and I'll move on to the next guy. But once these guys have, once they start hitting double digits and strikeouts, and there's so many starters now, it, you know, I talked about maybe the Porcellos and Hendrixes aren't as appealing in today's game, where just getting the ball put in play can really hurt you. I'm always on the hunt for one of those rate, and I, I know this is not a new strategy. I, I know, you know, Ron Chandler was, was out in front of this with how these guys can help you and a lot of HQ people have been all over this, but I, I still think it's maybe a little bit underserved in fantasy that let's fix our ERAs and ratios with relievers. And a lot of times those relievers are going to be guys who come completely out of nowhere because they've, they've been failed starters, they've scrapped you know, the idea of trying to throw three pitches, now it's just two pitches, now it's just max effort. You know, Throw 15, 20 pitches in appearance, maybe go a second inning at most. It's a totally different job. It's a totally different set of requirements. You don't need as many pitches successfully to be able to do that job. And At the end of the season, we're going to have a bunch of guys who are going to have 11, 12 strikeouts per nine rates who people never heard of the year before.
0: Are there any other pitchers like that that you've seen that we might want to look at?
2: The guy who really caught my eye is, is Nick Anderson, who's had a really odd and kind of troubled pro career, uh, but he's caught on with the Marlins, struck out 12 guys at in 5.2 uh, innings. And when we know they don't really have a dedicated closer there, I think they'd like to get some saves for Sergio Romo and then ship him out of town. You know, that, that whole thing is always a great move for a team that's not in contention, but um, I don't think they have any. You know, Conley may get some saves. A second rider hasn't pitched well, but he'll he'll probably get some looks too. And, of course, they may be a 55-win team. But when I see 12 strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings, I don't, I don't even care if I, about anything else. And he's not walking guys either. I think he's only walked one batter. So um, Nick Anderson right now, 1% owned in Yahoo leagues, He's available. I, I think he'd be a great guy if you're bidding on Sunday and you think middle relievers have value just to put in that $0 bid or $1 bid, I think you might be somebody who's figured it out. And last year he had really good numbers in AAA. And so um, Nick Anderson, unowned unknown, I think he's going to be good in Miami and it's a great place to pitch. So, you know, get that too
0: plus nobody wants any miami pitchers which is a, a help when you're chasing after them there's a guy the new guy in uh, toronto uh, trent thornton i don't know how much you've looked at him but uh, one of the things he's done so far in the early season is he's really got a lot of strikeouts and very few walks i think his ratio is around seven or seven and a half uh, when you see something like that off a new guy who's just arrived uh, how much are you interested versus cautious
2: I mean, two walks, fifteen strikeouts speaks for itself, especially in 10, 2 two-thirds innings. The only thing that makes me nervous is he did it at Cleveland and against Detroit, and then I'm just afraid that when it's more of the ALE schedule, uh, you know, the Yankees, you know, they don't have their full lineup right now, but it's going to be one of the better lineups. The Red Sox are obviously a lineup you don't want to mess with. Tampa Bay is is a good, solid team. Not that their lineup really you know, knocks your socks off, but they have they have so many good hitters in that lineup. At least the park there is a little bit fairer. And Baltimore, you know, Baltimore, it's, it's a weird park there because it's a great home run park. It's not a great runs park. It's just kind of average for offense, but the ball does fly out of the park there. So you worry about that. The bottom line is there are softer divisions to attack, and I, I just worry not that Thornton can't be good. And I'm interested in him, and he, you know, again, the walk strikeouts tell us so much. Uh, although I like to see him go deeper in games, he hasn't gone far further than five and two thirds in the first two starts. But uh, just a little bit nervous that eventually those Yankee and Red Sox games are going to come up, and I, I worry that big numbers could be ahead.
0: Another guy who has the fairly solid strikeout to walk rate is in Minnesota. Speaking of the American League Central, that's what made me twig to it because I was looking at Trevor Hildenberger the other day and uh, he's he's he seems to have the occasional bad outing, which puts him in a bad flavor with everybody because... It seems like when we look at these relievers, we're always looking, is this the next guy who's going to get saves there? And I don't think that's the case. They seem to have made up their mind that Hildenberger's going to have this kind of multi-inning role. But you said you think that could be a strength because of the vulture win possibility.
2: It could. The thing with Hildenberger, is he needs to keep the ball in the park. He allowed 12 home runs in 73 innings last year, and that's just way too many. But um, strikeout numbers were good. The walk numbers were reasonable. They could get a little bit better. And a good place to shop for middle relievers is with a team you think is going to win games. I mean, I actually picked Minnesota to win that division. So I think they're somewhere like an 87, 88, 89 win team anyway. And that means that there's going to be in, you know a couple of my guys later I'm going to recommend are from Minnesota. But um, there's going to be pitching value on this team, and it may not just be the obvious guys.
0: Yeah, not a lot of real super uh, deep starters either. So uh, a guy like Hildenberger could come into a lot of close games in a position to pick up a vulture win. Hasn't given up a home run yet this year either, which is uh, always something (laughs) at least a little bit valuable. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, before the season, you picked out Tyler Glasnow and Nick Pavetta as sleepers for 2019. And you followed up this week in a Yahoo Sports column, Uh, We have one of these guys going gangbusters, another who's just pretty much a bust so far. Uh, How are these two sleepers going so far, and what do you think is going on with Tyler Glasnow doing so well and Nick Pavetta doing not so well?
2: Well, I'm starting to think. I I had actually three guys linked together before the season. I had Glasnow, uh, Pavetta, and Shane Bieber. And I was saying half tongue-in-cheek, these are America's sleepers, and I say America's sleepers because they're, they were promoted on just about everybody's sleeper page in the in the outstanding Peter Kreutzer, um baseball annual they put out they have a picks and pants column i I believe you're part of that too uh-huh. uh, as I am as well and and people can promote or um, not promote any player they want they pick or a pen you know kind of like the Boons and banes will do later and on Pavetta it was nine picks no pants everybody was universally and it wasn't everybody but nine is a lot for the amount of people that contribute to this. And, you know, and I get it, you know, he's a strikeout pitcher His his expected ERA last year was so much lower than his actual ERA. And part of that was because Philadelphia's defense was classically terrible last year. They've improved it, but maybe they just improved it from classically terrible to bad. You know, I'm still not sure it's, it's a plus defense and he relies so much on his breaking pitches. And the problem with that is that when you're not right with your breaking pitches and they hang and they get, Knocked all over the yard, or unfortunately out of the yard. Sometimes I'm just wondering if maybe Favetta is going to be one of those guys, one of those Ricky Nolasco types, who it always seems like his already should be better, but maybe it's just not going to add up. The thing with Glass now is his walk the strikeout rate. Really, I think it's 20, 21 to three right now. He's somebody who he is does have a great curveball, and man, watch the video of that eleven strikeout game against the White Sox. Man, was he unhittable that day. I know Chicago isn't maybe the greatest lineup in the world, but I think anybody would have struggled with with Glasnow on that day. But but he can also when he needs to live in the strike zone with his fastball. I mean, he throws a 94, 95 mile an hour fastball. He's a gigantic guy. What he's like six seven six eight. He looks like a power forward from you know one of the NCAA basketball teams. But um, I think. There's more plus pitches for Glass now, and I, I think he's in a better setup with with the Tampa Bay team behind him they, in a better park to pitch. Uh, although, again, Philadelphia is like Baltimore. It's a really good home run park. It's not that bad for scoring. It's maybe misunderstood in that direction. But I'm starting to wonder if, if I overestimated the improvement of the Philly defense and if I didn't completely factor in that Pavetta needs that curveball to be sharp for him to be at his best, and just some days it's just not going to be sharp.
0: Meanwhile, uh, Tyler Glasnow has the uh, the great skills going on, as you mentioned. So the question for each of these guys is, how confident are you that Tyler Glasnow stays as good as he looks, and how confident are you that Nick Pavetta stays as bad as he looks, and is there a buy low, sell high opportunity in either in one case or the other?
2: I, mean, I, I want to make it clear, if you have Pavetta, I think you need to write him out for a few more starts. With, With the- Glasnow... If I were ranking the pitchers right now, I mean, you, you don't want to get totally over your skis, but I'd have to rank them in the top 30. I think I'd consider ranking them somewhere in the low to mid-20s. Now, that Part of that, and if that sounds crazy to somebody, I encourage them to go through this exercise. You'll be surprised how quickly you get the pitchers you're not really that sold on because it's just the second and third tiers of pitching isn't anywhere as deep as it used to be. And you know, as Gene McCaffrey would say, they all get hit, you know, I mean, Aaron Knoll is a terrific pitcher. He had nothing earlier this week. Um, we just had to grab get hit for the first time in a while. Um, it's just the pitching isn't that deep right now. I mean, Glassnow is the guy. Here, here's my rule with Tyler Glassnow. If you have Glassnow and somebody comes sniffing around in a trade, if the trade isn't an obvious yes, I'm just going to say no.
0: And on the other side, if somebody offers you Nick Pavetta for a handful of magic beans,
2: I think you need to give him a couple more starts. I still like the team. I still like the strikeout upside. And although I've been underwhelmed by the defense so far, let's give it a little bit more time to stabilize and get a sense of where that defense is at. It. I don't. I. You'd be selling low on Pavetta right now, and that you know that's a little bit of an underrated thing. Sometimes you, selling low is the right thing if you think it's a pitcher or a player is going to bottom out, especially with pitchers if you think they're hurt. You know, I mean, sometimes cashing out while like you still can is, is a good move, but I'm going to get Pavetta, I think, till the end of the month at least.
0: What about if someone came to you offering Nick Pavetta? Would you be interested if the price was, you know, next to nothing?
2: I mean, some people will say there's no bad players or good players. There's just good prices and bad prices. You know, if the price was real, if the. Well, here's the thing, okay? I'm sure there's some mixed leagues where he's been dropped. And I would, you know, I would look for a good landing spot in the schedule. I, you know, wait for that Miami start that's coming up. I think that division is also uh, matched up with the AL Central, which I, you know, I, I keep hammering this point, but that's where you want to pitch. So, um, if he were dropped in the league, or if somebody were offering him as a throw-in or offering him pretty cheap, and I this is easy advice to give, right? I mean, if you can get somebody at a really low acquisition cost, it's almost always if you can see plausible upside, it's almost always the right move to go. So. I don't want to act like I'm I'm saying anything revolutionary here but yeah I would you know if I could get him with the I want the coupon I would need the coupon on Pavetta right now but I'd be open minded if the coupon did apply
0: I think that's an excellent way of putting it for sure. Uh, And Scott, I know this is a baseball podcast and some listeners believe that means we are simply not allowed to talk about other games, but I like other games. I like other sports and you're an award caliber analyst and writer in all of them. So I'd like to ask you quickly how you see the Stanley Cup playoffs shaping up. Uh, Who are your final four?
2: Yeah, I'd be really surprised if Tampa Bay didn't go to the finals and I'd maybe even be more surprised uh, if they didn't win the whole thing know uh, they didn't win. They had a really strange opening game, but they had a three nothing lead and uh, to Columbus and blew it. But they have stars in their first line, you know, MVP candidates. I think Kucherov could easily win the MVP. Obviously, he just won the scoring title. They have three lines that can score, a very deep defense. They have a star goaltender. I think they have the right person coaching the team and Cooper. I, I, I just think they have everything. So I, I have them winning the Eastern Conference over Washington. Um, I don't think I'm a Bruins fan growing up in New England. I don't think the Bruins have enough depth in their scoring to to beat Tampa Bay and if they even get that far. I mean, Toronto really ate the Bruins lunch last night, and you know maybe Toronto can give Tampa Bay a scare, but Tampa Bay just seems deeper than everybody else. I picked Winnipeg to win the Western Conference, but I, I want to say that I think the winner of the Winnipeg-St. Louis series is going to go very deep. I, you know, I wasn't thrilled. As somebody who believes in Winnipeg and picked Winnipeg a while ago, I wasn't thrilled to see them get St. Louis – and what a story the, Blue, the Blues are. I mean, they were, the, I think, the bottom team in the Western Conference just inside of January, and they've completely flipped. they got a goaltender going really well right now. The advanced metrics really like St. Louis you know, for their shot differentials and, and their puck possession, and they do well in a lot of those stats. Um, so I, I think that the winner of this series is a chance to go deep. I did pick Winnipeg, but I'm wondering if maybe I just ignored some stuff with St. Louis that I should have looked at. I do think the Western Conference has more potential candidates to come out of it. I have uh, the Winnipeg-St. Louis winner playing Calgary in the conference finals again. Calgary, a lot like Tampa Bay, you know, three good scoring lines. They have star talent. You know, Godreau is a star talent. I'm not sure how great Mike Smith is, but he looked terrific in that opening win over Colorado. Uh, so let's call it Tampa Bay over. Winnipeg-St. Louis isn't really fair to pick both teams. I picked Winnipeg before the playoffs, so I guess I'll stick with Winnipeg. Although I'd, I would not be surprised at all if St. Louis beat them. And again, I, I think the winner of that series goes deep. But I feel very confident. I know they're 0-1 right now, but the Tampa Bay is just better than everybody else. And even though hockey is a lot of variance, hot goalies, you know, a power play unit can go hot or cold, that type of thing. And the best team does not always win in hockey, but... Uh, Tampa Bay to me clearly seems like they're the class of the NHL, and I think they'll be coronated this year.
0: Well, those playoffs have just started. The NBA starts on the weekend. Uh, when you look at the NBA, who do you see as your final four?
2: Yeah, the NBA, of course, if you, you know, if if you like more upsets and more variants, usually, although I did pick Tampa Bay, usually hockey is the way to go. Now, the NBA, the, the better team, almost always wins the seven-game series. So it's it's hard not to pick. I have Golden State over Milwaukee in the finals. And my final four was uh, Milwaukee over Philadelphia, Golden State over Denver. Although I, I say over Philly, I, you know, Toronto's got an excellent team. Um, a little bit banged up right now, but um, I could certainly see them making a run. But you know, Golden State and Milwaukee, I love the coaching staffs, obviously the talent. Uh, it's a shame that Golden State-Houston looks like a second-round matchup because I think Houston actually has a great chance to go deep too, but you just hate to see them with Golden State in that second round. I don't really like the way Houston plays with, with the Harden and the isolation and the pick and roll and everything, but, they, man, they got that thing down. And uh, they're so well coached. Uh, Mori is a terrific GM. Um, it, it's going to be a fun the thing with the NBA playoffs is I feel like they don't really get interesting until in the second round. I mean, yeah, Boston, Indian, Indiana will be a good matchup. But um, uh, that gold, that uh, Portland-OKC uh, matchup looks pretty good. But a lot of these are going to be boat races. You know, Golden State will win in four or five. Milwaukee will win in four or five. And I guess what you get, you think about the NCAA tournament we just saw, there were almost no upsets early. But what that led to is unbelievable games later in the tournament. I think that's what we're going to see in the NBA playoffs, that the first round will be kind of blasé. But then, oh, my God, you know, it could be houston Golden State in round two. That could be awesome. and. Uh, it'd be really fun to see this Milwaukee team go deep. I mean, the talent they have and how well coached they are. And, and it's not just you know the you know the Greek Freak, who's probably the MVP of the league. They have some really really good players on that team that you know people don't know about Middleton or Brogdon yet, but they're going to. So I have Golden State over Milwaukee in the final.
0: Is Brogdon going to be back for the second round?
2: Yeah, I hope so. And man, you know, a guy who shoots it, you know, I mean, he what was he, he at one point he was like a fifty. He was like a 40, 50, 90 guy. (laughs) You know, I mean, just those guys don't grow on trees. It's also fun to see somebody who stayed in college for a long time become an NBA star because there's such a stigma now, right? That if you're any good, why aren't you going pro right away? But it took him a while to get his footing in college. He was a really good player by the time he left Virginia and uh, one of my favorite NBA players. I hope he's healthy for the playoffs.
0: I think it could be a really interesting NBA playoff tournament because one through five in both divisions – our conferences I guess they call them uh, are all pretty good and so uh, I assume that one two three are all going to win their first rounders and then you got a, the four or five winner and I think all of those second round series look like they could be really fun to watch one four two three and both on both sides of the of the equation because there's a pretty big drop off to six seven and eight in both divisions but uh, the first five in the uh, in the East, the first five in the West, are all going to be able to put up a battle when it comes down to that second round. I think it's going to be really interesting.
2: Totally agree. I, again, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Houston beat anybody. And you know, the Celtics have had trouble with their rotations and figuring out who their best players are. You know, it's such a shame that Hayward got hurt at the beginning of last year. He hasn't really been the same player that they expected. Um, the Irving situation. Up in the air, um, you know. Jason Tatum is one of my favorite players. Um, see if he'll stick with the Celtics because I know he may be part of a Anthony Davis trade. It, the thing with the NBA is that I'll, I'll be honest; it's not my favorite game to watch. Strictly from the the play of the game, I, I like the NBA, but I mean, I like hockey more, I like baseball more, I like football more. But the NBA has such a great news cycle. The NBA is such an interesting league. The players are fascinating, very well-branded, but they're just legitimately thoughtful, interesting guys, and the thing the NBA has that I think over every other sport, I may have mentioned this on a previous appearance on your pod, Adam Silver by far is the best commissioner in sports, and just the relationship between the ownership and the players seems better in the NBA than any other sport, and I've had a prediction for a while, and again, I think I may have said this before, so I'll try to keep this really tight, but... Someday we're going to see a professional sports league play less games. I think every season is too long. And the idea, the problem with giving up games is that you give up money, you give up revenue. I mean, you know, who wants to give up that? But I think someday the NBA, between Silver and his side and the Players Association their side, might realize, you know what? rather than have these long seasons and then, you know, somebody buys a ticket to see LeBron James and he's sitting that night or somebody buys a ticket to see the Spurs or the Warriors and their stars are sitting because it's the fourth game in six nights or something. I think they might realize, you know what, we're all better off playing 65 games or 70 games or 72 games or something like that. Give up just a little bit of money, but we're going to gain it in the quality of our lives. We're going to gain it in less wear and tear in our bodies We're going to gain it in a higher quality of playoffs. I think the NBA might be the progressive league. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think they might be able to figure out, you know what, a little bit less might actually be more beneficial for everybody in the long run.
0: Yeah, I've heard uh, multiple ways of approaching it where uh, one of the ideas was you play everybody in your conference three times and everybody in the other one once, which would be 71 games. And then there's a 3-2 and kind of thing, which ends up around the same 72 games, 74 games, something like that. And if it cut down on the the back-to-backs alone, it would just be worth doing, I think. And one last thought about the NBA before we move back to baseball. Watch out for Gordon Hayward in these playoffs. He's looked fantastic in April. He's been one of the better players in the league, and it maybe just, you know, one of those catastrophic injuries like uh, Paul George had. It took him quite a while to get back onto his uh, onto his feet because it's such a traumatic thing to go through, and then all of a sudden he looks great again. Uh, don't be surprised if Gordon Hayward really helps the Celtics. Uh, you're listening to baseball hq radio not basketball hq radio and uh, i'm patrick davitt with scott pianowski and scott we'll get back to the baseball now during the season i like to ask our experts to talk about boons and banes these are guys who are going to be good for the rest of the season or not so good or not above expectations or not above expectations however you want to phrase it, it's fine with me but let's start with your boons these are guys you think should be of interest to our listeners in the american league who's a boon hitter
2: I've been a Marcus Simeon guy for a while. Um, Power-speed combination. He's getting some run in the leadoff spot. Doesn't always sit there, but he'll be there some of the time. I think the Oakland lineup is a plus lineup. And just just somebody who, he's not in the the top group of shortstops. He wasn't going to go where Zander Zander Bogarts went. He's not going to go where Trey Turner went or guys like that, but I think he somehow gets lost in the shuffle where he his average could be around uh, league average. It could be a neutral average for fantasy. He's going to give you the power speed. He's improved his defense. He used to be a terrible defender. Now he's actually a plus defender. I think he's somehow lost in the shuffle at Oakland Park. And I got laughed out of the room when I promoted Alex Gordon on a blog. He's mid thirties. Hit two forty last year. Two forty five last year. Who, who wants that guy? But he's batting third behind Merrifield, behind Mondesi. Merrifield's a great hitter, and I think Mondesi is a dynamic player. I do believe in him. And last year, Gordon stole a bunch of bases late in the season. He actually stole some bases in spring training. And a lot of stolen bases, I, I think this is Gene McCaffrey's quote, but I could be wrong. A lot of times with stolen bases, it's about the will as much as it is the skill. Uh, Gordon still gets on base at a reasonable clip, and even though the Kansas City lineup isn't deep, he's going to hit third, which is a good spot to be in. I, I think he's going to be mixed viable valuable all season he was a double double guy last year i think he could hit 12 to 15 on runs steal double digit bases hit for an average that won't kill you and have reasonable run production and then so far he has more walks and strikeouts i didn't i don't know if i mentioned him earlier when we had that discussion but i think alex gordon is overlooked and will be mixedly viable most of the season
0: how about in the national league a boon hitter
2: uh jesse winker is somebody i like uh good walk strikeout rate uh high line drive rate his bad bit is comically low but those things just don't make any sense that's going to fix itself i would try to get winker now if you could uh, i think andrew mccutcheon is going to score the most runs in the national league just being a great on-base percentage guy at the top of that philadelphia lineup he's off to a little bit of a slow start don't know how much he's going to run but i would try to kick the tires on him if you could get him and I'm talking myself into Jason Hayward. You know, he had a rocket home run last Friday, that he hit two homers and stole two bases the next day. And since then, he's homered again and stolen another base. Again, the stolen bases, it's the will a lot of times, not the skill. Jason Hayward wants to run again. Getting the ball back up in the air, this is a guy who was just a ground ball to the second base machine for such a long time, he's finally elevating the ball more. I think Chili Davis getting out of Chicago may have helped some of their hitters at the Joe Sheehan um Joshian theory that I'm I'm parroting there, but uh, and if you're going to parrot somebody, why not parrot Joshian, who's terrific and I know a regular contributor to this podcast? But um, I, I'm back in on Jason Hayward. I, people have left him for dead. He's still in his 20s. I, I think he can help us.
0: Over to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher that you think could be a boon?
2: Uh, I said I was going to focus on the Twins, and you know I think everybody knows Jose Barrios is good. So I'm, I'm probably kicking the obvious on that, but I think he could be Cy Young good. I think he'd be like this year's Blake Snell good. Um, I, I love the shape that he's in. I love the plus pitches that he has. And again, that landing spot, that division, I'm, I'm going to keep hanging that drum, but that's where you want to pitch. And uh, if you want to go cheaper in that in that rotation, Michael Pineda's looked really good in his first couple of starts. And um, it's always been a matter of health with him. I think he landed with the right team at the right time. And uh, Michael Pineda, is somebody you probably got as your last pitcher, or maybe one of the guys on your bench. It's time to get him in your active lineup. I think you're going to be happy you own him all season.
1: And
0: one of those guys who's a bounce back candidate. He was always a top prospect and had all those troubles. And sometimes those guys are exactly who you want when they figure it out, get a little more mature, those kind of things. Uh, in the National League, who's a pitcher you like?
2: You know, Texas is one of the worst places to pitch. And when guys get out of Texas, we always see, like, when pitchers get out of Colorado, we get excited. But I think Arlington is almost as extreme, and you know Cole Hamels was not much of a pitcher in Texas, and then last year he got traded to the Cubs. He was terrific. And then this year, what happened? First start of the year in Texas, he got lit up again. But I think he's an undervalued pitcher. I think he's a top-35 pitcher and probably the de facto ace of that staff. And his stats look worse so far because of that one start in Texas. I still think he's going to be trustable. Incredible pitcher, just a set-forget guy most of the season, and said somebody who I wish I had more of. Unfortunately, people were pushing back in my drafts about Hamill, so I didn't get nearly as much as I wanted to. But uh, I just throw the Texas stuff out. And sticking with throwing the Texas stuff out, Derek Holland was not much of a pitcher in Texas. And then he went to the White Sox that 2017 season, the year that the ball just flew out of all the parks. And granted, we may be in that environment again. But his Chicago numbers were so bad, I think people just probably wrote off Derek Holland for good. And then he went to San Francisco last year. ERA in the mid to a little bit higher threes. He had a whip in the maybe high 120s. Totally playable in today's environment. And then, uh, you know, he's already had a, a couple of reasonable starts. I, I used him, I think, in Tout Daily on Tuesday. He got me nine strikeouts. We know how that park is such a favorable place for a pitcher. Okay, so you steer him away from the the games at Coors Field. Everybody knows that. Derek Holland is good enough to be owned in mixed leagues. The last I checked, he was owned at like 10% of Yahoo leagues. That number is far too low. He can be a useful pitcher.
0: Scott Pianowski's boons: Marcus Semyon, Alex Gordon, Jesse Winker, Jason Hayward, Jose Barrios and Michael Pineda, both of Minnesota, Cole Hamels and Derek Holland. Uh, over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, to the American League, who's a hitter? Who's a potential bane for you?
2: I hate to do this. I, I love the city of Cleveland. I'm going to put the entire Indians offense. Okay, there. Uh, Jose Ramirez was terrible in the second half last year. I, I think he'll be okay, but I don't think he's going to be a first round player. I'm not. I'm not convinced of that. When Francisco Lindor comes back, is he going to run? Is it going to be worth it for him to run? And look at the pieces around. This is a team. They, they let Brantley go. They didn't. So many guys. I mean, Adam Jones would look great on this roster. I don't know why they didn't sign him. He signed for peanuts in Arizona. They went on good Hanley Ramirez. I did car, Carlos Gonzalez. I, I don't see it. They, they lost their best hitting catcher. This lineup depresses me. I, I think it's going to be a problem. And the thing is, with Ramirez and Lindor, even if they play – About as well as we can expect. You need to be. There needs to be a buoyancy to the lineup. Okay, it's not that lineup protection means that you're giving good pitches. It's a. I think of lineup protection meaning I want people on base when I'm up, and I want people to drive me in when I get on base. And other than Lindor and Ramirez themselves, who else in this lineup is going to knock them in? Opening day they had Tyler Naquin batting third. I. This this offense depresses me. And if I were a Cleveland pitcher, and their lineup, their staff is great. So one through five, they have. You know, Bauer could maybe be ready to make a Cy Young run. Beaver might be their fifth pitcher, and he's terrific. Corey Kluver still has a lot left in the tank, but um, hopefully Clevenger won't be out too long. But if I were them, I'd be looking around thinking, "This is the offense you you surrounded us with." i man, I, I, you know, another reason why I didn't want to take Ramirez in the first round. I mean, with with Lindor, it was simple. I'm just a fade-the-injury you know, Unless I get a really good discount, I just don't go near them. You know, Clayton Kershaw basically wasn't on my board. But um, a big reason I didn't want Ramirez is, how can you take somebody in the first round if you don't like the offense around them? And I think the Indians have one of the worst offenses in the American League.
0: In the National League, who's a hitter? Who's a bane for you?
2: I hate to say this because I like Brandon Nemo. Um, he's, he's an on-base guy. He's got power. He's got a little bit of speed. I'm worried about two things. One gets hit by a ton of pitches. And I just can't see how that isn't going to always have him be injury prone. And two, I think the Mets could be could easily be jumpy with that leadoff spot where if Nimo doesn't get off to a hot start, they might go in a different direction. Um Rosario is somebody a lot of people like. I think he's another Sheen guy. I think uh, Ron Chandler might be in on Rosario, too. I I wonder if eventually, even though Nimmo, look, his career on-base percentage screams out that he should hit leadoff the whole time, but the Mets haven't always seen him that way. I'm just afraid, will he hit lefties enough? Will he stay out of harm's way? Is he going to get hit by too many pitches, even with all the body armor? That makes me nervous. Um, I think Nimmo is going to be a better real-life player. I mean, the on-base percentage is great, but most leagues are still batting average leagues. I think he's a better real-life player. Than fantasy player. I just worry that he's going to have trouble staying healthy. That's also how I feel about David Dahl. I know he's already on the injury list. and There's a lot of debate about, are players injury prone? It's one thing with pitchers, because we just have to be afraid of everything with pitchers. But Dahl's got such a long injury list, such a laundry list of injuries, that I have to feel like you're getting 90 games out of him. It's a little cherry-picking and and a little bit unfair to pick him now, because he's already hurt. But uh, he's somebody that if I did own him, I'd wait till he came back and did a little bit productive production-wise, and then I'd try to trade him.
0: Back over to the mound, uh, who's an American League pitcher who's a bane for you?
2: I'm petrified of Chris Sale. That's you know not much to say there. I think we all know why. Uh, anybody who's holding Craig Kimbrell, I'd be pretty close to just taking what I could get because I'm not sure when he's going to come back or how. Effective, he'll be. I mean, granted, he could be considered a National League main too. You can put him in any league you want. And Carlos Rodon is somebody who's been really successful to this point, but it's been with lower velocity. He's been really lucky with no home runs. He's still walking too many guys. I think he's going to be the pitcher we saw last year, and may maybe in the mid to high threes, usable. But there may be somebody, if you have Rodon right now, you may be able to shop, say, look, I have a lot of pitching, and somebody may look at Rodon and think, okay, he had a pedigree, he was a highly touted prospect, maybe they think he's putting it together the way we talked about glass now. I think Rodon is a little bit smoke and mirrors right now. I think it might be a good time to move him.
0: And in the National League, a bane pitcher? Sorry.
2: I feel like Steven Strasburg is somebody I always make as a bane. I, I, the two great days of Strasburg ownership are the day you get him and the day you get rid of him. I just don't trust him to stay healthy for a full season. I don't he has, think he has the mentality to pitch. Uh, he's not, it's really good that he's not a number one on that team because I don't think he's meant to be one. But he's somebody who, at every little hiccup, is going to need time on the injury list. And The days of people still thinking he's a Cy Young candidate, he's just another okay pitcher. You The know, other guy... Who, consistently doesn't make his suggested ERAs. It isn't every season with him, but it's been about 70 to 80% of the time he misses his peripherally suggested ERAs to the point that I think we have to consider that part of his profile. I'm nervous about Walker Buehler, the way he started the year and the the Dodgers. It's almost like they have an eight man rotation and they're just going to be really careful with everybody. And so with Buehler, even if he comes around, which I think he likely will, I think it's going to be like 135 innings of Buehler. They're a team that probably thinks they're already in the playoffs, and they're not going to overly tax their staff in the regular season. The division's probably theirs to be won. I think San Diego's a really fascinating team, but that may be like an 84 win fascinating team. The Dodgers should roll with that division. I'm just worried that they're going to be uber careful with the staff, and we won't get the value we get out of them. And Jake Arrieta is just one of those obvious guys that his ERA don't match the secondary numbers right now, and his stats have been moving in the wrong direction. I don't think it's a very sophisticated pan. Because I think most people can see the era, the Arietta case. But if you are in a league where people are just mesmerized by ERA and they don't do any secondary poking around, uh, maybe you could trade Arietta to an unsophisticated owner. I know nobody listening to this podcast is going to miss that, but then you never know. Only takes one person to take advantage.
0: Scott Pianowski's Baines, the Cleveland offense in its entirety: Brandon Nimmo, David Dahl, Chris Sale, Carlos Rodon, Steven Strasburg and Jake Arietta. Boy, Scott, this has been a treat, as it always is. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Scott Pianowski.
2: Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, Yahoo Sports is where you'll find me, on Twitter, Scott underscore Pianowski. Um, we're doing a baseball, fantasy baseball podcast with Yahoo that I host. It, it drops on Mondays. Uh, we've had a, a lot of good guests. We've been trying to get some of the guests that you hear on this program, so, you know. You will only steal from the best, Patrick. Um, so I hope you check that out. That's on Mondays. I still do the Breakfast Table podcast with Michael Salfino. That's football and baseball. That's generally a Thursday or Friday thing. And, again, you know, I'm on Twitter every day. You want to talk baseball. You want to talk music. You want to talk hockey, uh, you know, film, whatever. Um, yeah, anything's in play. Let's have a good conversation.
0: All right, Scott. Thanks a million for helping us out. I do appreciate it. Uh, really interesting, as I said. Uh, look forward to it, and I'll talk to you again during the season.
2: Thanks so much, Patrick. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports. When we come back, it's our regular weekly talk with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: All <laughs> well, i am trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the plane I'm not changing nobody. It I'm, easy, buddy. I'm only asking you, who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> first no, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on third? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about <laughs> him. Now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on third? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go. Back like, on third again.
5: <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, PD. Todd, you wrote a column at Rotowire this week talking about how you're making some adjustments to the results of your pitcher rating system at Rotowire to include in-season results a little sooner than you might expect. Now, before we talk about the changes that you made, how does that pitcher rating system work?
6: Well, what I meant was I, I've got, you know, we've talked, I've got a rest of season algorithm which it folds in the skills. You know, I think we both uh, go to the school of skills portent outcome and you, you want to focus on the skills and, you know, take the outcome with a grain of salt and, you know, predict the outcome based on the skills. So I've got an algorithm that takes my expectations and what a pitcher's done in season and it folds in the skills at different rates, but it it, it adjusts my expectation. And it usually takes five or six outings, good 30, 35 innings for a pitcher to, you know, to, to really move the needle and it's not just round off when I'm doing some rankings and the whatnot. But, I mean, this, I, I even, you know, I thought of this, I mean, I decided to do this before the the pitching climate of today where we may have a juice ball again and the home runs are flying and strikeouts are up again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But even without doing it, I like to take a look in, and it has to do with, you know, there's only a certain amount that I can do. There's some really smart people out there, and you've talked to a bunch of them. Jason Coledino, Saris, a couple that are doing some deep dives on some pitching. Uh, an ex-HQ guy, El Malkier, is doing some work with with the Athletic now. Has a nice piece this week. And I need, you know, I, I I can't. Well, I'm I'm proud, but I can't, you know, I have to I have to take advantage of the fact there are people, you know, doing some excellent work out there. And if I can identify. A pitcher, a change in a pitcher's skills, previous to when my algorithm catches it. There's a new pitch. There's a uh, you know increased velocity, et cetera. Uh, I I owe it to the readers, to the the rankings, to make the adjustment before the before the algorithm catches it, so or, or before you know the algorithm thinks it's real. You know, this is more paramount in today's society <laughs> environment with all the home runs. So I set the mark at three. At three starts, I was going to set a filter, and my filter was basically K9. Uh, we talk a lot about home runs being important because in fantasy they're a hit, they're a run, they're an RBI, and they're a home run. Strikeouts are sort of the, the fulcrum of pitching, right? They're, 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 they're a stat. And more strikeouts result in less, you know, lower ERA. Most ERA estimators incorporate K9 or K% and BABIP is, is related with strikeouts. So it, it helps your whip and a better ERA helps you win. So a strikeout is sort of the, the central stat in pit, pit, pitching for fantasy. So that's kind of the one I, I, I looked at. I, I filtered pitchers that have a higher strikeout rate than what I initially expected And those are the initial focus. Do I want to change my initial expectation before it's really captured by the algorithm?
0: And that's an interesting question because there's still some uncertainty about when these skills stabilize. I know we all agree on when they stabilize to a certain extent but there's still some uncertainty and obviously there's going to be variation from one pitcher to another. We trust that a Justin Verlander or a, a, a veteran experienced pitcher is going to settle into his groove a little more quickly than a guy who's in his first or second year, has been up and down from the minors to the majors, been in and out of the bullpen and so forth. And so that idea of stabilizing rates has to be taken with with some degree of caution and so what how are you adjusting the algorithm to to take account of the other things that are going on
6: yeah i i need someone you know i need someone smarter than me and there are a lot of them out there now to tell me why i should i need someone to uh to point out that uh the the pitch mix is different the the distribution is different you work with a pitching coach and he dropped the cutter for the slider, or or something like that. I need something tangible, you know. I I can and I can read Fangraphs and Brooks Baseball and see that the velocity's increased. I can look in, and see that the swinging strike has increased. You know, I I can do the number scouting that I've always been able to do. I'm relying on some of these other people who, you know, my job is to look at 1,400 players. Other people's job is to once a week do a deep dive on one player, and I you need know, I need to you know I need to rely on those people to. Uh, to tell me some stuff that I miss, and you know, so that's what I'm looking. I need something tangible. I make, you know, I, I, some, sometimes number scouting's enough, but you know, enough, usually enough not to make a move. Uh, in order to make a move, I need something out there. I need someone that has done some research, you know, maybe is close to a team and 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 talk to the pitching coach or whatever, something like that. Uh, you know, it, it's I'm not moving. You know, if if I were moving half of the players that have three stars that that says more about my algorithm than anything else. So, you know, if I if if there are ten pitchers that I talk about and I only gonna move two, I think that's a good thing because that means that the algorithm is probably doing its job. But I may have identified two pitchers that are going to be high or low on the rankings. It doesn't matter if I have the guy or not, when you're when you're doing rankings, you you have a share, you know we'd like to talk in shares if my job is to do pitching rankings for next week, I have a share of one hundred and fifty pitchers, right? Because it's my job to. Doesn't matter if I don't have. I don't. You know, I don't have to say I don't have Chris Sale. I don't care what you know if he losses is coming back. If my job is to rank Chris Sale, I have a share of Chris Sale. Well, you said in the column
0: that you decided rather than not, like just jumping in at, after one start or two, you were going to still maintain a three-start minimum before you started making these assessments. And some pitchers have reached the three outings, and you picked out some guys you think that are overachieving based on those three outings. And I guess then the question is, well, we'll talk about some of them in particular here in a second, but the question is, are they actually overachieving or have they set a new
6: level? And how do you decide that? Well, that's the thing. We are we're now you know we're now making what's supposed to be objective subjective. But again, I I need something tangible to uh to to make a move. And I you know I think I talked about six or seven pitchers, and I'm only overriding two of them. Which again, I think that's a good thing. The other ones, you know, I, I it could have been it didn't have to be the focus of the article didn't have to be pitching rankings. It could have just been don't don't believe these hearts hot starts. We're seeing a bunch of those now, and you know, pointing out why one shouldn't believe a hot start. My angle, if you will, my shtick, is that you know these these are feeding into my rankings. I'm not adjusting their baseline, uh, you know. So if someone wants to comment, why do you have you know Jordan Zimmerman's come out and and crushed it for three? Well, I didn't crush it for three starts. Uh, you know, had, ha, has has had a decent three starts. Why is he ranked so low? Well, you know, I will can point to the numbers and say, well. Um, You know yes sure he's done this and that but if you take a look at the expected era or take a look at the left on base percent he's been a little fortunate thus far i'm using mean zimmerman may not be the best example because i don't think anybody out there is going to be questioning why jordan zimmerman is so low but there are there are pitchers that uh you you know charlie morton has been one i didn't talk about him but he's out pitched his era for a year and now a couple of weeks Is, are we missing something or, you know, regression doesn't punch a time clock, is regression coming? History teaches me that it's coming. It may not, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it takes the next week, sometimes it takes a year and a half, but the regression monster usually makes a visit and Morton is a candidate. So until it does, I'm going to look like a fool. Once it does, I'll look like a genius, but people say, well, you know, it's just, you know, dumb luck, but, uh, you know, when you, you know, or... Are we missing something in the expected estimators that's, that can explain why someone like Charlie Morton has outpitched his ERA, uh, has outpitched his skills for so long?
0: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting question that that starts getting into the whole realm of how much – expert analysis can you add to the algorithm as part of your job as being a player projector or a player uh, um, forecaster Mm -hmm. in that you have all these automated systems to gather data, parse the data, analyze the data, and then run them through the algorithm. And then it pops out at the other end and says, this guy's a $10 pitcher or a $20 pitcher. This guy's ERA should be 3.0 and it's actually 2.0. So he's bound to regress. And then at some point, the expert analyst sometimes inserts himself into the process and says, I understand what the algorithm says, but the algorithm is missing something. And in this case, for instance, one of the pitchers you did mention was Matt Shoemaker, who got off to a terrific start this year in Mm -hmm. Toronto. And we were talking about him on Baseball HQ Radio after these uh, terrific starts. And uh, the, the subject came up, well, yeah, it was Baltimore and Detroit, though. You know the opposition he was not he was not running up these fantastic results pitching against the Yankees or the Rays or you know that he wasn't in Colorado he was just pitching against two pretty bad teams
6: with pretty weak offenses and that has to count for something right and I pointed out actually I, I talked about the beast elsewhere I think I'm remembering that as opposed to writing about it I think there's two sets of teammates on this list which could mean it could mean just that that they each have faced the same set of weak teams and as you know and listeners know early in the season there's a lot of home and homes there you know home and home or whatnot so sometimes they face the same team twice uh you know same poor team twice but just the way to schedule and that's you know that's why that's why i usually say it usually takes five or six five or six starts because now you're getting a little better of a mix before i before the data becomes really tangible which, you know, three is a risk, because just as you're saying, it could even be something as, well. you know, a guy just happened to face, and, in, in, you know, it couldn't even be the quality teams. It could have just been cold in those cities, and, and good-hitting teams aren't going to hit as well when it's cold, right? The umpire wants to get out of there, so he widens the strike zone and that sort of thing. So it's a risk. That's why I kind of need to see something different with the pitch mix or the velocity or... Uh, You know, and, and, and just not just the, the the distribution of pitches, the sequencing is the word I'm looking for. It could even be different sequencing. Uh, I really need something to hang my hat on to make the move because what I don't want to do is, you know, I don't want to make moves just to appease the trolls. That's the last thing I want to do.
0: And I was looking at that too, that you have two, uh, besides Matt Shoemaker, you also have Marcus Stroman on your list of uh, these overachievers. And you've also got two guys in Detroit. You mentioned Jordan Zimmerman, but you also have Matt Boyd. And Matt Mm -hmm. Boyd is being really talked about in the expert circles. I hear his name on podcasts. I read it on websites. This is somebody we all of a sudden should be looking at because this is the year we finally see this breakthrough. And again, there's questions about the uh, opposition. And I wonder if this sets up a kind of natural experiment for analysts like you, where you've got two guys from the same team facing common enemies and having similar results, and whether you can say, well, now I've got two guys who have this same improve- the same level of improvement, but they're different enough pitchers that I can compare Stroman to Shoemaker, and I can say, okay, both of these guys are ahead of where they should be, but there's different reasons why.
6: Yep, they can. You know, again, I need something. I need something to hang my hat on. And with with Strowman and Shoemaker, now the th- they both come with that asterisk in that it's still. You know, we're still talking about streaming and not unless it's AL only starting. But you're going to start them in AL only anyway, just because you don't really have a choice. So even if I, I, I come to the conclusion that the one or the two of them are better, we're, they're still. How, is that actionable? Now, I think it might be a little bit more actionable with Shoemaker because he comes with a higher baseline, strikeout baseline than it does with Strowman. but you know what I, what I decided with Shoemaker was, we're getting a little, we talked park factors before, the, uh, the, the park factor switch from, uh, in, t- in terms of strikeouts, from Angel Stadium to Comerica, to, to, sorry, Rogers Center is pretty significant, and by the numbers, Shoemaker was affected. It may, you know may you know not all pitchers are affected equally so I'm gonna I'm gonna soften that just a little and give Shoemaker a little bit higher of a baseline strikeout which then has a domino effect. Uh, not doing that with Stroman just yet. Have not seen enough with Stroman to to override anything yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna let this the the, the formula organically fold it in, and I don't know that that makes Stroman a different pitcher for me. I think he's still. You know, I love him in in, in, in sim leagues. Uh, you know, because his ratios are good, but you need those strikeouts, and we're not going to get them.
0: And you have one, uh, a couple of pitchers actually, Todd, who are from different teams: uh, Carlos Rodon of the White Sox, and Luis Castillo of the Reds. Luis Castillo is another guy who has been long uh, expected to be a terrific fantasy pitcher, and has had his ups and downs. After three starts, what are you seeing with Luis Castillo?
6: Yeah, um, yeah. I think I made a joke in there about everybody saying they were one year too early because this is what we wanted to see last year and the whole narrative about being working in cold weather and, and the weird schedule last year for the Reds, who knows if that's effect or not. But we're seeing an increase in strikeouts and that's what I'm looking for and he's got his swinging strike rate uh, correlates, well, Correlates it it, it, it. it supports the increase in strikeouts. And he's a guy that last year his strikeout rate dropped. So I know it's only three starts, but I just, I, based on the pedigree and what we've seen in the past, I think my personal initial strikeout rate may have been a little low. So I know, you know, I'm adjusting my initial projection and I know what drafts are over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But since I use that as a basis for my rest of season, it will get folded in and, you know, it, it'll get further improved by the by the current rate but in the you know in my update that's coming out tonight the you know castillo will rank higher than he would have had i not made the adjustment so it's a bit of a risk but again in, in today's climate I, I you know we cannot afford to i don't think we can afford to be behind when we make our cha- uh, choices for pitching there's so few 2 start options which makes the one start options even more paramount And I I just, I think we, when you, when you, when you know, when you believe and I get paid to believe when you believe a guy's made a change, I think we owe it to the, you know, to the readers and the audience to, to, to act on it.
0: Well, when you talk about Luis Castillo being higher than he would be if you just relied on the algorithm alone, how much of a bump can a player like this expect to get from these uh sort of expert level observations about things that are outside the
6: algorithm? Yeah, you know what? I was I, I don't know the answer and I was I, I actually want to find out. I'm actually right uh, while while you know before we're talking, I'm uh, I'm I'm Updating my spreadsheet. I'm, I'm getting it from reading my rest of season projection from last year. So uh, you know, as we joke about when we look at spreadsheets that we haven't looked at for six months, we gawk in amazement at how both impressed we are at the coding and how embarrassed we are about the coding. <laughs> from both, <laughs> I can't. I was so smart to do this, and I was. I did that. That's. I should have coded that better. So I'm going through that now. I should have that answer for you because uh, I, I, I'm actually curious. I'm gonna, gonna, I'm actually doing the entire set of rankings with my old set and with the new set just because uh, I am curious about that because sometimes roundoff, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, so it, it goes up, but when you put it through the algorithm, the, the end result's the same because it's just roundoff error. Well, not error, but it's just roundoff effect.
0: Well, sticking with Luis Castillo then, Todd, uh, you mentioned that his strikeout rate has improved. It's up around 35%, which is uh, up from 23 last year, which was down from 27 the year before. So it's bouncing around a fair bit anyway. But he's also posted a 57% ground ball mark, which is 11 points higher than last year. When you're looking at these two different metrics, both are showing gains, which of the two do you think is likelier to sustain based on stabilization rates?
6: Yeah, I, you know, it's not my data from, you know, I, I think actually ground ball, if I recall correctly, I don't have it in front of me, that actually stabilizes fairly fa- fairly quickly. Uh, line drive rate takes forever, but um, I, I I believe in the strikeout rate sooner and we've had the talk before, you know, you know five years ago, this is the, the talk we have where I'm using the stabilization rates verbatim. And then the past couple of years pointing out that the, uh, the gentleman, uh, the uh, pizza cutter, that that, that um, Russell Carlin, that, that first, you know, came up with the stabilization rate com- uh, concept has come out and said it's being misapplied, that it's not forward-looking. It's just within that sample itself that the numbers are stable. You can't make the, uh, the leap of faith that the next... Numbers are going to display the same level, you you know, but, you know, my, my takeaway from that is if, if, if contact still, if that number is, is smaller for contact, the time it stabilizes is still sooner than the ones that have a longer, uh, you know, point of being real within the size itself. So I just, it's all regression anyway. So, um, I still believe that, that contact is one of the ones that I should be looking at sooner to make sure that the pitcher, not to make sure, but to see if a pitcher's skill set have changed. Um, so of the two uh, strikeouts, I believe ground ball rate, though, is it does stabilize fairly quickly, so it, it, it becomes real pretty quickly.
0: And one last question. I know we've talked about this before, but when we talk about a 57% ground ball rate for Luis Castillo, that's fifty fifty-seven percent of the balls he's allowed to be put into play as fair balls and
6: not ground balls, is that, uh, not home runs. Is that correct? Um, I, you know, I'm not. I believe you're right. It's just fifty percent, fifty-seven percent of the balls and of the balls in play. So it's not fifty percent of his pitches. So right, strikeouts don't go into that. And I think you know, uh, we you, you, we talk with Gene McCaffrey a lot, and I you know come, I subscribe to the same school in that I don't know I don't. Consider ground ball rate a skill. I think it's a, a trait, and you have to take it in context. You know, give me a fly ball pitcher that doesn't want guys, that strikes out a lot of batters in a big park with a good defense, and I'll beat your ground ball pitcher every day. You know, it, it's all context. Um, I know I had to put a lot of qualifiers on that, but, you know, it, 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 as long, so long as there's still a situation where the fly ball pitcher is better, Then uh, it's to me, it's not a skill has to be taken in context. Said that great American ballpark. I want a ground ball guy. Oh, for sure you do. But
0: I, I think the point I want our listeners to take away is when you're comparing two pitchers and one of them has a, a 60% ground ball rate and the other guy has a 50% ground ball rate, don't automatically assume the 60% guy is better because he could be allowing a lot more balls into play than the, than the 50% oh, yeah. guy, which means you'd rather have the 50% guy because there's a lot more strikeouts in there, which means no ball in play and a, sh- and a, and mm-hmm. a sure out. There's no such thing as a BABIP uh, calculation using strikeouts.
6: Yep, yeah, for sure. Uh, we took a look at Matt Boyd, and he, one of the things about Matt Boyd is he's allowing, or he's so far uh, the pop-ups just through the roof. Thirty-three percent of the, a thirty-three percent pop-up rate, and it has to do with a, a little. He's working a little higher up in the zone, and pop-ups are an often overlooked number. They are a skill, and they're as good as a strikeout. Although the defense, I know the games you're watching games I'm watching, I think defense is just... just, I'm not impressed with team defense thus far. And I haven't seen all that many pop-ups drop, but I I don't feel comfortable saying a pop-up's an automatic out right now.
0: Yeah, it's the next best thing, though. But again... (laughs) <laughs> we have to be careful about pop-up rates because they're pop-up rates as a, pop-ups as a percentage of fly balls, not as a percentage of of plate appearances. Right. And uh, when I measure them, Todd, in my preseason preparation, I always set these all these things up as percentage of plate appearances because I want to know what each pitcher's and what each hitter is doing per time that he faces somebody or, and and I want those outcomes because to me 33% pop-up rate doesn't mean anything if he's only getting a 20% fly ball rate but a 5% pop-up rate means a lot if he's getting 70% fly balls.
6: Right uh, well to be to be honest it depends on your source of data you know so the real take-home lesson is understand which one it is because I've seen it both ways. I've seen just strict you know I've seen it just you add up ground ball fly ball bunt line drive Etc. and it comes out to 100, and I've seen pop-up expressed as percentage of fly balls. So it depends on your source. Make sure you know which one it is and consistently use it in your research, and you should get consistent or, or, or at least you know actionable results.
0: Fantastic, Todd. Thanks a million for helping us out again. I'll talk to you again in a week. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer pitcher matchups, and master notes—all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Now, what is on second? You know what? Who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> You got outfield. Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. You. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield. No, 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 no. I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. No, third base.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. Time now for our regular HQ radio commentaries. Coming up, we have pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Cleveland outfielder Oscar Mercado. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
5: Maybe it's injuries. Maybe it's cold weather, or maybe it's just bad luck. But two weeks into the 2019 season, for whatever reason, the Cleveland Indians offense is looking anemic, ranking last in Major League Baseball in batting average and other hitting categories. However, just like the brisk Ohio weather in April, Cleveland's bats will eventually heat up. If they don't, maybe Cleveland's historic Lakeview Cemetery on Euclid Avenue will create another headstone to be placed next to the recently placed Cleveland Basketball Playoff Dreams, born 2018, died 2019 headstone featured on the cemetery's Facebook page to commemorate the end of the Cleveland Cavaliers' dismal 19-win season. Ouch, don't go there. Seriously though, we have a lot of baseball left in the 2019 season. No reason to panic over a slow April start from a fantasy perspective. Yet sometimes, slow starts can produce fast changes, especially for a team in need of a spark plug. Enter 24-year-old center fielder, Oscar Mercado. Well, maybe. Just to be clear, there's no imminent news of a call-up. Then again, significant changes to Cleveland's outfield might be right around the corner. Make no mistake about it, Oscar Mercado had a blistering spring, batting 421 spring training games for the Indians with three home runs and 1,165 OPS. Wow! Not bad for a guy who only hit eight home runs total for two organizations at AAA in 2018 and his 278 batting average at AAA in 2018 was exactly that, average. That's why Oscar Mercado, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Sure, maybe his 2018 stats, his career minor league stats, on the surface appear to be average at best, but here's why Oscar Mercado should be on your radar. Speed, for one. Oscar Mercado has stolen at least 30 bases in every season since 2015 when he snatched 50. Yes, let me repeat that. 50 stolen bases in 2015. Plus, according to the 2019 minor league baseball analyst, Oscar Mercado has a flat line drive stroke that could allow him to hit at the top of a major league order, which significantly increases his stolen base and run potential. More importantly, Oscar Mercado's contact rate, or his ability to hit the ball into the field of play, has been hovering around 80% of the A level, placing him among baseball's best hitters, according to our 80% contact rate benchmark at BaseballHQ.com. So don't let your championship dreams end up on the Lakeview Cemetery Facebook page. Pick up Oscar Mercado as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, where we use Baseball HQ's daily pitcher matchups ratings to inform our decisions about starting pitchers to start, to sit, or to think about. Here with a scan of Blake Snell of Tampa visiting Toronto and Clay Buchholz, as well as some other matchups this weekend, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick.
1: Choosing which pitchers to start each week or given day is an essential element of winning in every fantasy format. The BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool is a statistically verified method for making those choices. We'll highlight some of the ratings from that tool for Saturday and Sunday games. Depending upon the depth of your league, up to 17 starters have overall matchup ratings worth running out there this weekend. The biggest advantage belongs to 2018 American League Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell for a scheduled Saturday start. With his marquee matchup rating of 275 and his opponent's minus 137, the left handed Snell has a whopping matchup rating differential of 412. The Rays are in Toronto, where the Jays will probably start right hander Clay Buckles. Buckles is expected to go directly from the injured list to the mound for his first start of the season. He ended 2018 with a strained pitching elbow after one September start and also lost time for an oblique strain. Buckholz has earned his F grade in health. The Jays have allowed more runs than they've scored in the early going this season, and they have more losses than wins so far. The Rays lead the division with the second-best record in Major League Baseball at seven games over 500 and have scored more than twice as many runs as they've allowed. In 19 innings over his first three games started this year, Snell has an amazing BPV of 2.15. He's posting what would be career bests in control rate at 1.4 walks per nine, whip at 0.89, expected ERA at 2.34, dominance rate at 12.8 strikeouts per nine, first pitch strike rate at 65%, and swinging strike rate at 19%. Snell is picking up right where he left off and is a definite must start on Saturday. Skipping over the rest of the Aces expected to perform well this weekend, let's look at a couple of the biggest surprises. Carlos Rodon of the White Sox in the American League and Zach Eflin of the Phillies in the National League. Rodon is going into Yankee Stadium on Sunday where being a lefty has some advantages due to park factors. He's scheduled to face right-hander Domingo Herman. Rodon has a matchup rating of 144, and Herman has a matchup rating of minus 011. That makes a matchup rating differential of 155 in favor of Rodon. The Yanks are scoring a run more than they're allowing so far, and the White Sox are allowing two and a half runs more than they're scoring. Herman has some strong surface stats in his small sample of two starts and 11 innings, including an ERA of 164 and a whip of 091. So why does the advantage go to Rodon? The answers lie beneath the surface, and our matchup rating tool takes them all into account. Herman has a hit rate of 12%, a strand rate of 80%, an expected ERA of 4.46, and a BPV of only 13. Rodan has three starts and 16 innings on his 2019 resume, with a hit rate of 38%, a strand rate of 70%, an expected ERA of 335, and a BPV of 160. That's why Rodon is a good choice this Sunday. Right-hander Zach Eflin faces Marlins lefty Caleb Smith in pitcher-friendly Marlins Park on Saturday in Miami. The Fish are already swimming upstream, losing three times as many games as they've won and allowing nearly twice as many runs as they've scored. The Phillies, in case you haven't heard, made some nice improvements for 2019, who are already paying dividends. Philadelphia has won nearly twice as many games as it's lost and is scoring more runs than it's allowing. Both Smith and Eflin have two starts in the 2019 books, with Eflin logging 12 innings and Smith 11. Smith has reliability grades of F in health, D in experience, and B in consistency. Eflin has a D in health, a D in experience, and an F in consistency. In 107 Major League Innings pitched, Smith has 121 strikeouts, an expected ERA of 433, a whip of 129, a first pitch strike rate of 58%, a swinging strike rate of 13%, a command ratio of 2.6 strikeouts per walk, and a BPV of 84. In 268 Major League Innings pitched, Eflin has 203 strikeouts, an expected ERA of 4.49, a whip of 132, a first-pitch strike rate of 64%, a swinging strike rate of 9%, a command ratio of 3.0 strikeouts per walk, and a BPV of 80. In the early going, both Smith and Eflin are beating their career bests in most metrics, so head-to-head, they may be pretty even. But in this case, the Phil's superiority should shine through, making Eflin the better choice, especially for the win. The BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool gives you an eight-day scan of what to expect from each starter every day. Use it to make informed choices for your teams and make better luck for yourself this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll have our weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about managing all those injuries. So, how's your week going? Hasn't been so great for fantasy players whose teams included Ronald Guzman, Franchi Cordero, Matt Moore, Brian McCann, Alex Avila, Aaron Loop, David Dahl, Mike Clevenger, John Lester, Nate Carnes, or Hyunjun Ryu. All of those players were placed on the 10-day injured list through Wednesday of this week, with injuries affecting their hamstrings, their forearms, their elbows, their knees. You know that song, Head and Shoulders, Knees and Toes? It used to be a ditty for kids. Now it's all in minor chords and it's a dirge for fantasy team owners. Hamstrings, elbows, forearms, core. I can't take it anymore. Groins and shoulders, aching knees. Someone stop these injuries. I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. But seriously, according to the excellent website RosterResource.com, from the end of last season through the 334 games played this year through April 9th, teams had already lost more than 2,600 player days to injury. And that's assuming that all the guys on the 10- and 60-day ILs come back in the minimum. Which we know is not going to be the case for Clevenger or Trey Turner or Corey Dickerson or Jake Lamb or Ryan McMahon or all the other players IL'd since Tywan Walker, Kendall Graveman, Jesse Hahn, Julian Fernandez, Sean Manaya, and Johnny Cueto led off the injured list season with Tommy John and shoulder surgeries in the early part of the year. At the current pace, teams will absolutely shatter their DL, now IL, levels from past seasons. In 2019, teams are on track to lose more than 40,000 player days to the injured list. That's an 18% increase over last year when teams lost 33,000 days, and it's up more than 20% from 2017 when teams lost about 32,000 days. And keep in mind, a lot of playing time is also lost to minor injuries that last a day or three or six, but don't send the player to an injury list. Baseball HQ's injury analyst Matthew Cedarholm, who does great work writing the Big Hurt column at the site, might have to up the frequency from three days a week to maybe all seven. And maybe he should be asking for combat pay. Now, to be fair, we should note that Troy Tulowitzki alone accounts for 20,000 or so lost days all by himself. But at this rate, by 2022, teams are going to be losing slightly more than all their players to injury. And your phone might ring because your local big league team needs you to start at shortstop. So what injuries are occurring? The roster resource data doesn't have injury specifics for the past seasons, but in 2019 the most common injuries have been Tommy John surgeries, 27%, shoulder injuries at 19%, knee injuries, 11%, non-Tommy John elbow injuries, 9%, core injuries, 7%, and all those other kinds of injuries down the line. And who is getting hurt? No surprise here, it's pitchers. They accounted for 54% of DL injuries in 2017, 58% in 2018, and 62% so far this year. So loosen up. Your team might be calling you to throw a few relief innings before you get that start at shortstop. To cope with all the injuries, one of the newish ideas floating around in fantasy circles is to focus on organizations, with the idea that some are ahead of others in preventing player injuries and hastening recoveries. Combining 2017 through 2019 so far, the median was 41 DL injuries per team. The teams to avoid would have been the Dodgers, with 57 separate stints, Toronto with 53, Texas with 52, the Angels with 51, and San Diego with 50. The Dodgers, Angels, and Padres? Did they have a lot of players on the DL with sunburn? On the other end of that spectrum have been three teams with 35 or fewer injury stints, led by the White Sox with 33, followed closely by Detroit, and the Cubs with 34 and 35. The White Sox and the Cubs? What's going on in Chicago? Chicago? Now, again, to be fair, we have to note that the Dodgers might appear more injury-prone than they actually are because of their well-publicized shenanigans with their pitchers and the 10-day IL, but the White Sox training staff has long had a reputation as being ahead of the pack in injury prevention and management, so there might be something there. Another way of looking at the situation is to count total days lost to injury. Over the last three seasons, the median per team is 110 days. The highest totals belong to San Francisco with 234, Washington with 216, and again the Dodgers with 155. The lowest totals being Atlanta with 53, Houston with 60, and St. Louis with 70. So here's the conundrum. For fantasy purposes, it seems like injury management could be as important, or even more important, than other facets of player projection. That is, we're getting better and better at understanding the core skills of players, with velocities and angles and foot speed and spin rates, and maybe avoiding injuries or recovering from them might have to be assessed as a skill just like that. To some extent, good projection systems already try to account for injury risk by adding risk measures, like the Mayberry risk levels at BaseballHQ.com, and by raising or lowering playing time to account for the likelihood of time lost to injury. But forecasting IL time based on previous seasons is not going to be cut and dried. In 2019 so far, 143 players have spent some time on the IL. Of those, 49 had stints in both 2017 and 2018. That's 34%. 53, which is 37%, had stints in either 2017 or 2018, but not both. And 41, which is fully 29%, weren't injured in either of the past two seasons. How do we draw projectable inferences from that kind of information? It's going to be a challenge to project injuries with confidence using these kinds of data. Perhaps there's more to be learned by digging into the injury data in greater detail. I'm very curious, because I think there might be an edge here, so I'll be revisiting this later in the season or possibly in the offseason. I'll be looking into questions like these, or hoping to find someone else has and save me the work. How well do injuries to particular body parts correlate to future injuries, either to the same body part or in general? How granular do we have to be in describing injuries? Is it enough to say a knee injury, or should we be delving down into knee cartilage injuries, knee meniscus injuries, ACLs, MCLs, all those kind of things? How does player age at the first incident of injury correlate with future injury issues? Is there a too-soon back penalty? How, if at all, do players' recovery times correlate with recurrence or subsequent injury? How well do announced return ETAs correlate with actual returns? And how real is this team effect that I'd mentioned earlier? It's all going to be plenty to chew on. In the meantime, I gotta go. Justin Smoke is day-to-day with a sore neck in Toronto, so I should go oil up my first baseman's mitt. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 17 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition of the show. Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports is a very good fantasy analyst in baseball and all the other big sports. Also, a great guy to sit and have a beer with and a longtime friend of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from baseballhq.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our Weekend Pitcher Matchups report was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt. Masternotes commentator and the host of baseball hq radio i sure hope to see you on the baseball hq.com subscriber forums also remember you can stay in contact with baseball hq on facebook and on our twitter feed at baseball hq you can also follow me on my personal twitter feed at patrick davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you get your pods. And if they'll let you, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating, which really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.